Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A couple of weeks ago, I was taking questions about if you lived in a perfect world. Of course, we don't live in a perfect world, but uh, I don't know. My world's pretty good. I don't know about yours. Even in spite of all the craziness, my world's pretty good. But uh, the question was, if you lived in a perfect world, what time slot would you be doing? Basically, I said I would be doing the exact same time slot that I'm doing now, except, you know, it would be nice, ideally, to have a fifth hour to do talk. Now, I've done a fifth hour before, but it's a very different situation when you're reading the news as opposed to doing a deep dive into the issues of the day. This is one of those days where I really, really wish we had a fifth hour. And it's funny. When I said that on the air, people, including a lot of broadcasters, broadcasters, friends, colleagues, family, they all would call me or text me screaming. Thank <laughs> What are you talking about? A fifth hour? Isn't four hours enough? Well, usually it is. Really? Today, it's absolutely not the case. I was going through the list of subjects that I wanted to talk about over the next four hours before the show, and it was killing me knowing that I couldn't get to everything. So we're going to get to it as uh, get to as much what? as we possibly can. Now, today was going to be the day. Today was going to be the day that I did not mention the words Russia or Ukraine. Today was going to be the day. And then Vladimir Putin has to go and recognize these two breakaway Ukrainian republics. And one of the people that we've been talking to, Russell Bentley, is in Donetsk fighting for the, the new government in Donetsk. So we've reached out to him, and we are going to, in the 3 o'clock hour, try, going to put our hands across the Atlantic Ocean to Donetsk, the, the region or the country, depending on your perspective, that is right now making news more than any, anything else. Now, keep in mind, Russell Bentley is fighting with the Donetsk. I don't know if they're Donetskians or Donetskers. He's fighting with the people in Donetsk. So there's danger that he might lose electricity or something. We're scheduled to talk with him at 3.30. We're going to see how that works out. We're going to find out what the people of Donetsk are saying about this recognition from Putin yesterday. Now, China also making a lot of news in the wake of the Olympics. We're going to talk with Isaac Stonefish in about 20 minutes about what American elites are doing to make China wealthier and more prosperous. But first, speaking of wealth, speaking of money, 
You remember the whole defund the police debate? Of course you do. I don't have to say remember. It's still going on right now. It really picked up steam in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. And you heard more and more calls around the country, including in New York, for defunding the police. Cities all across America were moving somewhat in this direction. Minneapolis, even New York. The theory was that the police get all this money. Maybe if we stop giving all this money to the police, maybe we can give it to social programs that can help young people be in a position where they avoid needing to get arrested. That's the theory, right? Well, we now have a pretty good window into how this has worked out. I've linked uh, to this article on my Facebook page. Burlington, Vermont, a very progressive city, is one of the best laboratories for seeing how this experiment has worked out. On the evening in June, on one evening in June of 2020, there was a city council budget meeting in Burlington, Vermont. That's a, a city some of you may remember. It's really a town, not a city. It's a town that Bernie Sanders used to be the, mem- the mayor of. It's a college town near the Canadian border. And over nine hours, the local city councilors heard a message that had rippled across the nation in the wake of George Floyd's death. Enough performing, defund the Burlington Police Department. That's what one of the city councilors proposed, uh, proposing the said. So the council passed a resolution that completely upended the way that policing was done in the city. Now, other cities with similar profiles, majority white college towns also defunded their police. Norman, Oklahoma, diverted 4% of the police budget to community services. Northampton, Massachusetts, they cut 10% from the police budget. Burlington, however, they went much further. They decided to slash almost 30% of their police force. Since then, city leaders have been forced to reckon with the unintended consequences of that decision, including problems with public safety and quality of life. Almost a year and a half later, nobody is happy with this. Not even the city councilor who proposed the resolution. We're in a situation that I think nobody wants us to get to. That's the word from... Councillor Hightower, a member of the locally dominant progressive party. The mayor who didn't support this, the mayor in Burlington, Mayor uh, Miro Weinberger, who's a Democrat, and uh, because the progressives are the dominant party, the Democrats are actually one of the more moderate parties in Burlington. The mayor didn't support cutting the force at all, but he agrees that this has not worked out. There's a lot of damage that has been done in the last 16 months. Now, Burlington is a city of 44,000 nestled on the shore of Lake Champlain. It's the home of the University of Vermont, and it is a beacon of progressive politics. The two major parties there are not the Democrats and Republicans. It's the Democrats and the progressives. The city's property crime rate over, you know, historically has been slightly higher than the national average, but the violent crime rate has been lower. 
The overall number of incidents, meaning calls that bring police responses, has decreased every year since 2016. And the number of high-priority incidents, including violent crimes, make up less than 10% of the total. Before defunding and COVID, officers spent a little over half their time on quality of life issues, such as noise complaints and intoxication. By many measures, Burlington is also home to one of the country's most forward-thinking police department. It prioritizes things like community policing. It's been praised for its approach to the opioid crisis. Its police chiefs implemented reforms ahead of the curve, like uh, body-worn cameras, all sorts of stuff. A lot of their police officers hold college degrees or advanced degrees, about twice the national average, actually. So um, you can imagine this being a robust ground for seeing how the defund the police experiment would work. So understand what was going on in May of 2020. Burlington, like a lot of other cities, had protesters marching on City Hall, marching through the city, rallying outside the police department, demanding defunding and termination of officers involved in past use of force incidents. We had all these issues leading up to the pandemic and leading up to the murder of George Floyd, said Councillor Hightower, who was the first black woman to serve on the city council. For us, it wasn't just a national problem. It was a problem here at home. So exactly one month after Floyd's death, Hightower proposed a resolution called Racial Justice Through Economic and Criminal Justice. She'd been elected to the city council just three months earlier. So several aspects of the resolution that she proposed were written not by her, but by an activist group called the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance. So on June 12, 2020, the alliance had published a letter to the city council on its website demanding an apology and reparations for Burlington's role in chattel slavery and a restructuring of public safety, including, among other steps, an immediate 30% reduction in the number of police officers. Now, they got it. This resolution also ended the school resource officer program and called for diverting police funding to social and racial justice initiatives. Now, if you're still listening... You know exactly how this worked out because chances are you still you have a triple digit IQ. This resolution was approved just five days after it was proposed. The vote was nine to three with all nine yes voters acting as co-sponsors over the mayor's objection, over the objection of the police chief, over the objection of the police union. And the consequences appeared quickly, almost immediately, slashing the police force which some of these politicians thought would take years, took months. You know why? Not surprisingly, we're seeing this go on in New York and a lot of other places. Police officers began to leave in droves. Before defunding, Burlington had about 95 active-duty police officers. You know how many they have today? 64. Only five officers are available to patrol at night, according to the police chief. Overtime costs have soared. I've never gotten that about the defund the police movement. You know what's going to happen when you defund the police. It means cops, there are fewer cops, and that means you're paying more in overtime. It makes no sense. You're not defunding. You're paying more in overtime. So um, the exit interviews 
according to the police chief, were very clear that it was about a lack of political support for the police and a sense of saying, this is not how I want to serve anymore. I don't feel value. Uh, veteran cops who'd worked for 10 years, maybe more, people who had just been promoted, resigned. And after defunding, many of these officers felt blindsided and believed these changes had been made without any input from officers, law enforcement experts, etc. So since then, how's it worked out? Badly. Crime is up. Violent crime is up. And now, because of the uptick in violent crime, um, and it depends on how you count, but I'll give you some statistics. They are now desperate to keep the cops that they have. So now the Burlington Police Department, the Burlington City Council is redirecting COVID money to give the cops a $10,000 bonus to remain police officers in Vermont to prevent more of them from quitting. Now, to me, this should be a cautionary tale into every community that is thinking of doing this. What happens when you reduce crime? What happens when you reduce cops, I should say? Crime goes up. And there's desperation. That's what we're now seeing in Burlington, Vermont. I have... um, put an article about this, which is, it's in the Daily Beast, which I don't necessarily have the highest opinion of, but this is a pretty comprehensive article. I've posted it on my Facebook page. You can read it for yourself at facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's facebook.com slash MoranoFan. We're going to have a couple of minutes to take a few calls before we get to Isaac Stonefish. If you want to call in and comment on this, you can do so at 800 848 That's 1-800-848-WABC. So um, you do see an uptick in not just crime, but violent crime. And the police union, look, obviously the police union has an agenda, but they accuse the city council of crafting plans, and I think they're right, with no critical examination of the consequences. They said this is a failed experiment And they cited the rash of violent crime. So um, some people say they're blowing the crime statistics out of control. I don't think that that is accurate. Okay, Um, you saw the number of violent offenses go up even while everything was shut down from, um, you know, uh, get from three hundred and thirty nine to three hundred and fifty nine. Uh, you're also seeing the number of shootings go up. The number of gunshots without a victim is showing troubling increases. Um, Burlington's shootings, which don't result in anyone being shot or killed, have gone up. So you have all these mysterious gunshots going off. And the police union in their press release says that's not going to last. If you keep shooting guns, eventually people are going to get shot. As the union said in a press release here, when guns are fired in crowded cities, people will eventually get hurt. What's more, people are already being harmed by the sense of uncertainty and diminished safety that accompanies these incidents. 
So um, between the year 2012 and 2019, the average number of gunfire incidents in the city was two. In 2020, there were a dozen incidents, and there were 10 by August. Of uh, I mean, to me, this is pretty sad that you had a city rush to legislate based on a slogan without any looking into how this would work out. There was no data saying, oh, this is how this worked in this city. This is how this worked in that city. And this is how it's like likely to work for us. Nothing like that. And I hope that we see other cities rethink this strategy. Um, you know, tell me what you think. 800-848-WABC. Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Morning, Frank. How are you? Um, I just want to say my daughter's a police officer in New York City, and uh, it bothers me that any place would try to defund the police. We're trying to, they're trying to do good work out there. They really are. You know, there's this community uh, policing and all of that stuff, and, and there's cops that do that, and, and it's good. You know, I don't have a problem with neither um, do I. Absolutely, I'm sorry. What? No, neither do I. Of course not. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just scary. I mean, why would you take money away from the cops? They need more money in order to get the equipment, the training, because there is good training out there. And yes, I think the police should have some more training for some other things, maybe. Uh, but this, you know, this whole thing is, is just scary to me. It worries me about my daughter. My son-in-law is also a cop out himself. You know, yeah, well, I hope they uh, stay safe. And uh, I, I'm concerned. I, I can't imagine being the father of a police officer. But I'm concerned just as a regular citizen. Because yeah. if you look at the numbers in New York, crime is going up. If you look at the oh, numbers in Burlington where they've embraced this defunding issue, crime is going up. And uh, this is just crazy that there are still policymakers and activists and uh, funders of activists, people like George Soros come to mind, that are embracing this kind of a philosophy. I mean, does, is there any common sense out there? I mean, if you take away money from the police, they're going to have to reduce their, their well, numbers. Yeah, I mean, so again, again, I think that's what's now leading to the panic in Burlington where they've been forced to – spend $10,000 and give these cops basically a a bonus of $10,000 so that these cops don't leave too. Roger that. Yeah. It's scary. All right, Frank, have a good night. Thanks. Thank you, Tommy. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. 30% of its police force gone. In a city of only 44,000 residents, the overall number of incidents um, was decreased since 2016 until this. And now there's a major problem. And uh, they are desperate to hold on to the police. And I will say this, like, like was quoted in the Daily Beast article. It's not just the issue of how many cops there are. It's an issue of morale. It's an issue on whether the cops feel supported, which in Burlington they don't. And I would submit to you, many in New York don't either. So I find this pretty illustrative of a disastrous foreign policy consequence. Take at least one more call here before we get to uh, Isaac 
stonefish. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, hi. I want to comment on this defunding of the police without thinking. I just caught the last part of the story that they didn't do studies. You know, basically what this is is a pattern of nihilism that's spreading across the country. Um, basically, if nothing means anything, then that you also can deny cause and effect. So what they're doing is they're denying cause and effect because that's really a, um, a byproduct of nothing of nihilism. Nothing means anything, therefore there's no cause and effect. Well, I, I'm not sure I follow. What do you mean nothing means anything? Nihilism is means that... Um, yeah, no, you know, I know what nihilism is, but... We're, what... all, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. So what does it matter? We do this, we do that. You know, nothing matters. So if nothing matters, then, then cause and effect doesn't have any validity either. Well, why do we care about cause and effect? Let's just, let's just go with the flow. All right. Try well, to uh, good luck with that, Larry. Good luck. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Let me take a quick break here, and we're going to talk about uh, China with Isaac Stonefish in just a minute. Those of you that are on hold, if you want to stick stick around, we'll be happy to take your calls. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I don't think, even with the events that we saw yesterday involving the movement out of Russia in Eastern Europe, I don't think there is a more interesting international relationship in the world than the relationship between the United States and China. If you look at it on the one hand, it looks like we're the best of friends. They lend us all sorts of money, and uh, we're happy to borrow more, 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 and more. They're happy to provide all audiences for American television and movies, or are they? And uh, we're happy to have Chinese audiences as vehicle for every wide variety of American pop culture. If you look at a lot of the goods that we buy each and every day in the United States, they're made in one place. China, on the other hand, if you look at uh, the handling of COVID, if you look at the tensions related to everything from human rights abuses to uh, the Olympics, not to mention a host of other issues related to the economy, it looks increasingly like we're rivals. So is China our best friend or our worst enemy? Does the truth lie somewhere in between? Those are a few of the issues that have been explored by Isaac Stonefish in his latest book. Isaac Stonefish is the founder and CEO of Strategy Risk. He is also a Washington Post global opinions contributing columnist and author of the book, America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. Isaac, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, thanks for having me. Uh, so, Isaac, I understand you're actually fluent in Mandarin Chinese. How does one become fluent in Mandarin Chinese, being an American growing up in the United States? I grew up in Syracuse, uh, loved my parents, but wanted to get as far away from Syracuse as possible. So I started going to China when I was 17, went to Xinjiang in the West and Tibet the summer after that, studied Chinese all throughout college and then moved there at 21 after graduating. Now, I am a fan 
of certain types of Chinese cuisine. But I've always heard from people that have been to China that the Chinese food in China is not really like the Chinese food that you get in uh, a lot of American Chinese restaurants. Set us straight, Isaac. What's the key difference between Chinese food in China versus Chinese food in America? It's a massive variety of different types of Chinese food in China. And every once in a while, you'll stumble on something that has a lot of similarities between, say, you know, mushu vegetables or a scallion pancake. But there's such a, a rich smorgasbord of different types of things. Uh, some very tasty, some quite gross, but always keeps you keeps you excited. All right. Um, what is the problem with China, whether we're talking human rights, whether we're talking the environment, whether we're talking the economy, in your view, uh, what are the problems with China as a member of the international community? The problem with China is the problem with the Chinese Communist Party, the government that has ruled China since Mao Zedong took over in 1949. And The issue there is that it is a Leninist political system that seeks to subvert individual interests for the benefit of the party. And before, a couple of years ago, most of this burden was put overwhelmingly on the shoulders of the Chinese people. But as China has grown more and more powerful, it's been able to exert more and more influence globally in ways that are starting to become more and more inimical to certain U.S. values and, frankly, certain Chinese values as well, because they're, they're not Chinese values. They're the Communist Party's values. How did China, now that the Olympics have just wrapped up, there was certainly a lot of controversy about China even being host to the Olympics this year. How did they do, in your judgment, as, a, as an objective observer of them being a host country? How did China fare? I am definitely not an objective observer. I have too many (laughs) mistakes in that game. But I will say expectations were incredibly low for Beijing hosting the Winter Olympics. And beautiful thing about low expectations doesn't take too much to meet them. So I think the... They did that. (laughs) There was no major, major scandal that came from this Olympics. And now the narrative has already shifted towards Russia. So I I think for them, it was a great and resounding success. There was some speculation that part of the reason that Vladimir Putin put off an incursion into Ukraine was because of the Olympics and because of Russia's increasingly cozy relationship with China. Do you buy that at all? I do believe that it's very possible he thought he'd have more ability to do this after a little bit more breathing room. I I have a lot of suspicion that Russia and China's relationship is all that cozy. I think Beijing uh, looks down on Moscow and sees them very much as a junior partner. And I think Russia has a lot of fear. I think Russia has a lot to fear from China, in part, because of their overlapping interests in Central Asia, in parts because of fears of Chinese territorial enrichment into Russia, and especially in the Far East, and in part because of Chinese influence operations in Russia. But I I do think the timing has worked out well for both sides. As far as the Olympics goes, there was a lot of attention paid to the fact that there was a Uyghur who was uh, doing the Olympic torch lighting. What is the significance of that? Why was that so controversial? Imagine the 1936 Olympics in Germany 
having a Jewish torchbearer. It was really, really galling because of what Beijing has been doing to the Uyghur people. They're a mostly Muslim minority in the northwest Chinese region of Xinjiang. Uh, Beijing, over the last several years, has been committing genocide against the Uyghur people. Upwards of a million Muslims have been in concentration camps. Beijing constantly denies, obfuscates, downplays its crimes in Xinjiang. And doing this is just a really big middle finger, not only to the international community, but to its own citizens. What was it? And what are they doing to the Uyghurs? Uh, we hear uh, the word genocide thrown about a lot. We hear the word persecution. Well, who are the Uyghurs and why is the Chinese Communist Party so eager to go after them? Beijing likes to say that there are 56 ethnic groups in China, 55 minorities and the majority Han. Han are about 92 percent of the population. Eight percent of the rest live mostly in the West. The Uyghurs live in the far northwest, bordering Pakistan and Kazakhstan. There's about roughly 11 million of them and a huge percentage, 10, 20, maybe even 30 percent, have been in what are best termed concentration camps Mm. where they've been tortured, they've been abused, they've been forced to eat pork, forced to drink alcohol, uh, forced to pledge allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. The reason we call it genocide is because of the forced sterilizations against Uyghur women and the drastically reduced birth rate in Xinjiang because of these sterilizations. The as far as the Olympics goes, obviously, with all the issues that China has been responsible for in the Chinese Communist Party, and you've just mentioned a few, there was a lot of um, questions about the sponsors of these games. There was a lot of questions being posed to the athletes that were participating in these games. Do you feel like this was an unfair position for the athletes and the sponsors of these games to be put in to be asked questions? about uh, geopolitical issues that they may not know anything about? I think once you become famous, once your company becomes large enough, people are going to start asking you these questions because your interests start to expand. And I think it behooves athletes and especially the companies to have a sense of what the geopolitical reality is and then make a decision whether or not you want to say anything about it. We've certainly seen, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Isaac Stonefish. He's the author of the book America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. We've certainly seen the United States boycott certain Olympics games before. Should the United States have sat this one out in protest, in your view? It's such a good question. The diplomatic boycott, had some PR effect. I think it's very difficult, or rather, it's very easy for me to say, hey, athletes have been training for a lifetime, sit this one out because of the atrocities that Beijing is committing. I I think the American people did the right thing with these Olympics and mostly ignored them. They were the least watched Olympics, I Mm. think, since they started keeping records of them. And and uh, what was the diplomatic boycott? Uh, there was uh, a lot of discussion that maybe this was something that didn't have any real effect. What form did the diplomatic boycott actually take? 
Beijing's intense paranoia on COVID meant that even if the U.S. weren't diplomatically boycotting, there'd still be a very limited number of officials there. It just meant that no prominent U.S. politicians were attending. Often it's a good time to build goodwill Mm. between politicians of one country and another, and in this case, the U.S., I would say rightly decided to just sit that one out. Let's talk about the fundamental premise of your book, that America's elites are making not America stronger, but making China stronger. How are they doing that? How are uh, how are our country's elites making China into a stronger, more prosperous nation? Some wealthy Americans over the last several decades have chosen to amplify China's strength suppressing its weaknesses, have chosen to divert criticism from China, have chosen to say, listen, we are going to overlook the bad, just focus on the good so that we can increase our own influence and so that this is just the way we think, the way we think the world should be. Uh, You write a bit about Henry Kissinger, for instance. What's he doing? So Kissinger... Until the until he left office uh, following the Jimmy Carter's victory in the in the seventy six election, was a politician, was a diplomat, was a statesman. In nineteen eighty two, he founded a consulting company, Kissinger Associates, and then he became a businessman. And there's nothing wrong with going into business. Uh, plenty of people do it. That's, that's what I do. The issue was that Kissinger pretended he wasn't a businessman and pretended he was still a statesman. And so he would advocate for pretended to who pretended to the the American people. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he was a very effective communicator and very effective at hiding that (laughs) this is what he was doing. And still today, people will quote and cite Kissinger as this, you know, grand intellect and really downplay what's been writing his, you know, his paychecks for decades. So how has China been writing his paychecks? So it's been, the process works as such. Uh, U.S. companies seeking to expand their business in China will hire former officials who run consulting companies to help them get the right meetings, get the permits that they need. Uh, Kissinger, Albright, Scowcroft, Um, big names in the foreign policy field. And these companies will pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars of retainers so that they get the right meetings, so that Kissinger or Albright will will write them the right email. And in exchange, the quid pro quo is that these retired officials won't publicly criticize China in a way that would reflect a more accurate reflection of the situation. They, it's a very sophisticated system. It's not as basic as this, but basically it's, it's money for silence and money for advocating for policies that benefit Beijing. One of the people that uh, critics of the Biden administration love to criticize is Hunter Biden. And one of the things that frequently gets thrown out about him is that certain foreign governments would use him to curry favor with the U.S. government. In your view, is Hunter Biden one of the elites that you're that you're talking about in this book? I always found the story of Neil Bush far more compelling. We have so much more evidence about what Neil Bush did. Neil Bush was the brother of uh, George W. Bush, 
and the son of George H.W. Bush and has a long and very distinguished career doing business in China. That's not to say that Biden doesn't have ties to China. It's just that there's a lot more out there on Bush. And perhaps once we have a little bit more time and more reporting is done on Hunter Biden, more will come out. But in terms of what is actually being able to be proven, a lot more from from Neil Bush when we talk about families. I will say, though, that this is a very bipartisan phenomenon. That's exactly Uh, what I was going to ask. Is there is there there's no partisan leanings that former Republican officials are any more likely to be getting paid by China than Democratic officials? Well, so uh, just to be clear, Sometimes people will take money directly from the party. Sometimes they'll take it from state-owned enterprises. Most often it's from U.S. companies seeking to do business in China. In terms of the breakdown, I'd love to have someone do a study on the lobbying and on the the deal-making and see if there is a political leaning. I think anecdotally, it seems to be – when you talk about secretaries of state, national security advisors, it seems to be a little bit more Republican. And then when you talk about ex-senators – it seems to be a little bit more Democrat, but I haven't done an actual careful count on that. So I wouldn't say for sure. One of the things that I've been amazed by on the one hand and troubled by on the other is the role that uh, China has had on affecting the types of films that American audiences can see. It seems like there have been tremendous editorial shifts in the kinds of movies that Hollywood has produced over the course of the last 20 years to uh, appeal to Chinese audiences. We've seen big budget motion picture after big budget motion picture that features either the country of China or a Chinese government official, including some cases a communist Chinese general, uh, as the hero or at least a co-hero. That's not just my imagination, is it? Not at all. It's very striking to see how much Hollywood has amplified positive Chinese voices and suppressed negative Chinese voices. And and it's a really sad kind of censorship because it creates this cartoonish portrayal of Chinese people. If you just portray the positive, you're, you're not portraying the reality. And for any race, for any type of person, they're complicated people. <laughs> we all are. And so just putting out positive creatures doesn't in any way build understanding. It's just a way of creating favor. It's also, I would say, less about trying to pander to Chinese audiences and, and much more trying to pander to the Chinese Communist Party. Because which which a lot is of Chinese... even more disturbing. Oh, That's even more even disturbing. More disturbing. Exactly. A lot of Chinese audiences would love to see complex portrayals of Chinese people. I mean, they see that sometimes in Chinese movies, but they can't see that in Hollywood because Hollywood's decided to just listen to the party. So uh, give us a couple of examples, if you would, of how we went from um, or even an explanation of how we went from films like Seven Years in Tibet, which would cover China critically, and films like Red Corner, uh, which would cover uh, uh, China critically, both very, very good films and uh, told part of a complicated story and had uh, good guys and bad guys in both of those films that were Chinese, to now where you can't make a big budget film unless it features a Chinese uh, superhero of some sort? It's a long and in some ways subtle process, but basically what happened was Beijing banned the studios 
that made those films, especially Disney. And they kept Disney in the dark and told them what they needed to do or alluded to them what they needed to do in order to apologize, in order to get back into Beijing's graces. And studios are, are part, uh, mostly part of these major businesses. And the studios were afraid, oh, if we make something that's critical of Beijing, we will lose the opportunity to do business on another arm uh, of our multinational. And it didn't happen overnight. Studios would learn what Beijing would like, what they wouldn't like, and what Beijing likes and didn't like changes. And sometimes depends on the official oh. in the censorship body that's, that's doing it. But you know, basically since 2012, 2013, with uh, China's new leader, Xi Jinping, taking power and the Chinese economy being a, a strong enough percentage of Hollywood box office gross, just decided to stop having critical portrayals of China anywhere in a major film. We've seen a lot of uh, criticism of how the NBA has handled their relationship with China, particularly as it as it relates to the criticism that was expressed by the uh, Houston Rockets uh, general manager over the Hong Kong issue and China's treatment of Hong Kong. What do we know about the NBA and how uh, they interact with China and the Chinese government these days? The NBA... They, they 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 go back and forth about how critical they're willing to be about Beijing. I mean, I, I think what we're watching now is, is what happened to Ennis Cantor, the Boston Celtics player uh, who's since been terminated. Uh, some folks believe, well, terminated across a few different steps. Some folks believe because he's been so outwardly critical of Beijing and a very, very rare voice in that. And a lot of NBA teams would strongly prefer to expand in China than to allow for freedom of speech in the United States. And that has provoked some pretty gleeful responses from U.S. elected officials, especially Republican senators, who chafe under criticism from, say, LeBron James, but wonder why he won't take that same critical eye to far clearer violations in China uh, than he does in the United States. Are there any other major corporations whose bending to the will of the Chinese government is particularly noticeable? Tesla, uh, I, I feel, <laughs> is uh, fairly, gosh, what's the right word, uh, fairly extreme in what they've done. They opened a showroom in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang on New Year's Eve, not long after the Biden administration passed a law restricting exports from Xinjiang to the United States because we don't want goods imported into this country that have been made with forced labor. Uh, so Tesla has been, <laughs> been pretty out there. Airbnb uh, has dozens of property across Xinjiang, or at least did as of a couple months ago. And had properties owned by an organization called the XPCC, which is sanctioned by the U.S. government and which is complicit in some of the crimes against humanity in Xinjiang. So there's a, there's a long list of companies. Those are 
two of my favorite, more egregious examples. Mm. Uh, it's 50 years ago this week that uh, President Nixon went to China and uh, met with Mao and opened up relations with the communist Chinese government. Prior to that, the the Chinese government that we recognized was the Republic of China, a.k.a. Taiwan. And through the prism of hindsight, seeing that we've seen what we've seen for the last 50 years, was Nixon right or wrong? I would say Nixon was right and Kissinger was wrong. I think it was great that we brought China back into the world, as Nixon said in the foreign affairs essays a few years before, that we don't want to leave 800 million people on the outside to, to nurture their grievances and, and to build their hatreds. And the problem with China came, I would argue, much later. It was the 90s, it was the 2000s. It was the focus listening to the business community at the expense of other communities. It was Bush's distraction after 9-11 that led to basically almost ignoring China in D.C. from 2001 to 2005. It was the idea of making China a responsible stakeholder in a global system that it had very little interest in being a responsible stakeholder in. And it was the Obama administration's inability to find any sort of real way to handle China. And there was a lot of disastrous things that Trump did while president. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but uh, it was nice to see the Trump administration start to push back in a more firm fashion against some of the things that Beijing was doing. Since you mentioned the Trump policy with respect to China, how does the the Trump administration approach to China compare with the Biden administration uh, approach to China? It's so difficult for a lot of everyday Americans to kind of see through the fog of partisan media and understand what uh, our government officials are actually doing on the China question. As you see it, how does the Biden policy on China differ or, uh, you know, differ or not differ from the Trump policy on China? It's remarkably similar. One of the things that is different is the Biden administration is working more with U.S. allies globally to push back against Beijing. They're putting a heavier focus on climate as part of their negotiations, which in the beginning allowed for, I would argue, too much flexibility with Beijing and not enough rigorousness. They're being slightly more organized. Uh, policymaking is, is a chaotic world. Biden administration is being slightly better about that than the Trump administration. But I would argue on the China question, they are more notable for their consistencies than their differences. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, with respect to Taiwan, what do you think that the United States policy should be these days? Uh, would you recognize Taiwan as an independent country if uh, any president asked for your advice on how to handle Taiwan? That's a great question. I would say that is a good goal to have. And the question is, how do you get there? Beijing has been so effective at salami slicing away from the idea of Taiwan being a country and raising the cost on any moves that legitimize its international status. And I would say, do the same thing in the reverse. You start taking steps that allow for the perception of Taiwan as a country. You start moving in that direction, and then eventually, hopefully, you get there.
Do you see any reason for optimism? Are there any hopes for reform of the of the Chinese communist government or have the last few years allowed them an opportunity to cement their place as the, you know, the leaders of China in a particularly cruel manner even more? So the funny way to answer this question, but Chinese elite politics are so incredibly opaque and it's possible that Xi Jinping will be deposed quite soon. It's possible that he'll you know, die in bed having served as the longest chairman of China you know, 30 years from now. My optimism with China comes from just the many lovely people that I met in my seven years in the country and the sacrifices that they are making today for their country. And it, it's one of those things that the, the less we know about it publicly, the higher the chance it has of succeeding. But I, I do place hope that at some point, you know, in, in our lifetimes or our children's lifetime, people of China will actually be allowed to state and, and write and create their own destiny. One of the things that I love about your book and your subsequent writings is that you make clear that it's possible to despise the China and still have a lot of respect and admiration for Chinese culture, the Chinese people and Chinese history. There's no contradiction there, is there? There's none at all. And the party wants us to think that those are huge contradictions, that only they can speak for China. They are China. They represent China. But really don't want us to be repeating Chinese propaganda or getting our thoughts shoehorned into those ideas. Finally, it's no secret that China has mishandled many different aspects of the COVID uh, pandemic and were dishonest, not only with their own people, but with the world about their handling of it and even their knowledge of the pandemic. There have been a lot of calls over the course of the last two years for some sort of public reparations for China's handling of this virus, particularly as more people uh, become believers in the lab late the lab leak hypothesis as you see it do you think china should face any sort of international penalty for their role in the covid pandemic politics is the art of the possible and i think if depending on who's asking if this feels like an effective public relations strategy to further change the global narrative on china uh, then i would support it but i think the chances of it succeeding of, of there ever being any sort of reparations are basically zero and so I think the question is, is this the most effective strategy to, to create support for a particular movement, or is there a better way to do it? And if there's a better way to do it, then I'm for that. Isaac Stonefish, wishing you the best of luck with the book. If people are interested, we didn't even scratch the surface of all the various ways that America's elites are making China stronger. Check out the book. It's called America Second. It's available wherever books are sold. Thanks for the time this morning. Thank you, Frank. Enjoyed it. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Moreno.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, taking your calls at 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC, 1-2-3-4-5-6 open lines. Uh, so we'll be able to get to your calls in short order. Coming up at uh, 3.30, we're planning to go live to the People's Republic of Donetsk, a, the newest country in the world, according to Vladimir Putin. I'm wondering... How long until Vladimir Putin recognizes the Republic of Malaysia? We'll have to see. I'll tell you what I'd like about uh, about visiting China, and I've never been to China. But what I think I would like about it is it strikes me as a very ping-pong heavy culture. And I know when it comes to table tennis in the Olympics, their athletes always do very well. And uh, I, I'm always just on the lookout for for people to play ping pong with. I was at my father's on Sunday, and I had the opportunity. They have a ping pong table in the basement. And I was uh, able to play with my brother Alexander, who's a far better player than I am. And so that's what you like to do, is you like to play against people that are at least as good as you are and maybe a little better. So I played him, I think, five or six games, and he beat me every single time. But the games were much closer than they have been. So I feel like I'm getting better. And he even remarked that I was much better since the last time we're, we're playing. I think because I'm getting more practice in. So yesterday, the first thing that occurred when I woke up around 1.30, I see walking into our home, um, City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli. He was, he was joined by a local judge who was off for President's Day. And remember, the last time that Joe and I played, it was on Super Bowl Sunday, and I won, I believe, two out of three games. So we played another three-game series yesterday, and uh, I only won one. But it was not long ago, so he beat me. He reclaimed the title. But it was not long ago that he was beating me in all the games. So I feel like my... I feel like it's evident that my quality of play is improving. And I also want to thank one listener, Anthony Viola, who uh, has always been very kind to offer to come spar with me ping pong wise the the problem has been finding like an hour where, where I know where I'm going to be free on the weekend the problem is you know every all these weekends we end up p- putting all of our social and family functions into those weekends so we're running around here there and uh, if somebody's up up the block in the neighborhood you can just text them hey come by right now but you can't do that if someone's traveling more than, say, 10 minutes away. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Frank, I could not have asked for a more perfect interview than the one you just had. Uh, my only, and this is just a minor comment, in part because I have relatives who are Tibetan ancestry, is maybe uh, have, having had uh, some discussion about what China is doing right now to Tibet, but uh, but that's just a minor criticism. You touched, you did a most admirable job covering all the major points, I thought. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. I know you're something of an expert when it comes to foreign policy. I appreciate you saying so. Thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll touch upon Tibet in a future interview. Those of you that are holding Pete, Dave, Joe, we'll get to you next hour. And you know what one of my favorite subjects to talk about is political comebacks. Could we be seeing... A major political comeback in New York. I'll tell you. This is the other side of midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Have your dog or cat spayed or neutered. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Come in strong uh, with, I think it is a step. This is the other side of midnight. I am Frank Morano. Well, it's no secret that um, there is a governor's race coming up this year, and it's going to be very interesting. It looks like there's going to be both a competitive Democratic primary and a competitive Republican primary, which I just love. I love the only thing. And there's going to be at least one, probably more than one third party candidate as well. And I'm all for competitive elections. I want competitive elections for everything. Unless it's something that I'm running for, then I don't want any competition. But unless it's me running, I think the voters benefit when there's a competitive Democratic primary, a competitive Republican primary and a competitive general election. Now, we know where the Democratic aspect of that is going, right? We see uh, Kathy Hochul as uh, she's running. She's it's it's a very interesting strategy she's imploring. She's not taking a position on anything. Uh, bail reform? Oh, oh, I have no idea. Oh, I don't know. Well, we'll we'll see. We don't like crime, but we don't want people uh, being being sent to jail. Uh, you know. Then you have Tom Swazi, who seems to be running to her right. Jamani Williams, who's certainly running to her left. So it's going to be interesting to see how that whole thing shakes out. The Republican side, you have five candidates so far. Three, The three major candidates appear to be Lee Zeldin, Andrew Giuliani, and Ron Astorino. More on another candidate that may jump into that race in just a minute. However, the, a new website was launched this week that is calling for a former New York governor to make a comeback. No stranger to the WABC audience, somebody who has been a regular on the Cats at Night show, somebody who has been a regular on the Cats Roundtable, somebody who has filled in himself from time to time. George Pataki. A new website, bringbackpataki.com urges New Yorkers to sign a petition to express their support for the move. Um, the Are we able to pull up the video that's on bringbackpatagia.com? No sound. Okay. So um, there is a new – it says on the website, unite behind the fight to save our state and join us to bring back Pataki. He has saved our state before. Let's elect him to do it again. Our best days are ahead for New York State. Now, here's what's interesting. By the way, if you want to comment on the idea of former Governor Pataki coming back, give me a call, 800-848-9222. The draft Pataki movement is being pushed by his former political director, Rob Cole. More on him in a second. But Rob Cole is quoted in the New York Post today as saying, we have to find someone who can win in November. We certainly can't win with Lee Zeldin. Uh, And then it cites in this New York Post article some of Pataki's, uh, you know, 
history, electoral history. A video on the pro Pataki website mentions the scandals that led to the forced resignations of people like Elliot Spitzer and Andrew Cuomo. The video includes the New York Post famous Ho oh No Spitzer front page. Pataki, who's now 76 years old, told the New York Post on Monday that he is flattered by the draft movement, but he threw cold water on the bid to persuade him to reenter politics, at least for now. This is what he said, quote, It is nice to hear people who think I was a good governor. As for the future, we need dramatic change in New York. So that's about it. And then he talked about some of the other problems that we're facing in New York. Seven assaults in the subway over the weekend. People are afraid to go to the office to take the subway. It's not a New York that is sustainable. We are at a tipping point. He said there are good candidates currently running for governor. Zeldin, Astorino, and Giuliani. Um, Zeldin has already won the backing of most of the county leaders across the state. So, first of all, tell me what you think about this. And as you queue up, I'll give you my two cents on this. 800-848-9222. So let's look at who's pushing this. Okay. Bringbackpataki.com. It's being pushed by Rob Cole. Now, Rob Cole's a political consultant. I know. I think he might have done some work over the years for our owner, John Katsimatidis, although I don't know that for a fact. Um, I know I see him a lot of, at a lot of John's events, so I was kind of just assuming. And he seems certainly pretty friendly with John. Um, Rob Cole is very, very close with Pataki. Okay? So... I got to tell you, the first thing is I don't believe that this is some sort of grassroots movement that spread uh, that 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 spread completely independent of Pataki because the person spearheading it is someone that's like this with Pataki. And if you can't see me, I'm holding my two fingers up to the microphone. They're interlocked with one another. It would be like me. Um, it would be like me running a. Uh, uh, I don't know, a a, a draft uh, Curtis Lewa for Congress committee and have it being completely independent of Curtis. Of course, you know, Curtis and I talk all the time, so you know it's not independent of Curtis. That's how this is with Rob Cole. Rob Cole and Pataki are very, very tight, very close. I think this was done with Pataki's full knowledge and and maybe a wink and a nod where Pataki tells Rob, yeah, do what you got to do, you know, but I'm staying above the fray, not doing anything. The other reason I think that is, you remember a few months ago, I wrote a column, I think a very good column, for WABCRadio.com, where I suggested that there be a unity ticket running as an independent ticket of Pataki and Patterson. And uh, we've seen this before throughout history, and we've seen this in other countries. In fact, that's recently what a version of this just occurred in Israel with Naftali Bennett, who's a right-winger partnering with the left-wing to provide an alternative to Netanyahu. But again, I don't want to get bogged down in the rough-and-tumbled world of Israeli politics because it's a little complicated. So the thing that was interesting to me is when I tweeted about that, and I linked to that column that I wrote suggesting that Pataki and Patterson make a comeback. Do you know who liked the tweet? And I think even retweeted it. George Pataki. Now, if George Pataki was not interested in a run for office, I don't think he would be 
liking my tweet on that subject. And I certainly don't think he would be allowing his old political director to do this. And it's interesting to me, you know, when during Curtis's campaign, even before Rob Cole was on board with Curtis's campaign, and Rob was basically his, uh, I don't know what his title was, but he was basically his campaign manager. Whenever you needed something from Pataki, what needed him to be somewhere, needed his approval for a letter or a picture, Rob Cole was the Pataki whisperer. That's how close he was to Pataki. Additionally, so I don't buy for a second that this is being done independent of what the governor wants. I think the governor is completely in line with this. I remember in 2012, there was an executive vice president and general counsel for the Trump organization by the name of Michael Cohen, who was running a a supposedly grassroots effort to draft Donald Trump for president. And he set up a website, shouldtrumprun.com, and he did a whole media tour urging Trump to run. And I remember we had Michael Cohen on with Curtis at the time. And Curtis said, well, wait a minute, you you work for Donald Trump, right? And Cohen said, yes. And so you want us to believe this effort is completely independent of Donald Trump? And Cohen said, yes. Now, of course not. Cohen was right down the hall from Donald Trump. You'd think if Trump wasn't okay with it, he wouldn't say to Cohen, hey, Michael, stop that. Of course he would have. So I don't believe this is independent at all. Now, what would this look like in a general election? Could Pataki get the nomination? I think he might be able to. Now, I don't think the state committee, which seems already to be committed to Lee Zeldin, I don't think they would go abandon Zeldin entirely and go with Pataki. Is there a chance that 25% of the state committee might and allow him to get on the primary ballot? Maybe. But Pataki would have no problem getting the signatures, and I think he could win the nomination. I think it's possible. Now, and if you look at the general election, um, and I say this, look, lest anyone think I'm a Pataki partisan, I am not. I never voted for him uh, in his three runs for governor. I supported Tom Golisano each time. And uh, now, since then, some of the awful governors that we've had since Pataki, I've really gained a whole new appreciation for what a good governor Pataki actually was. He was a much better governor than I gave him credit for at the time. And then if you look at especially his leadership in the aftermath of September 11th, if you look at how other governors have handled crises, uh, the Louisiana disaster of Katrina comes most immediately to mind. And you see the difference in the competent leadership that we had with Pataki and the incompetent leadership in Louisiana with the governor there after Katrina. And even in New York, you see the ridiculous tit-for-tat dueling press conferences that de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo would undergo, it really made you appreciate how lucky New York was to have, at a time of crisis, two adults. Even though they didn't get along, Pataki and Giuliani, they found a way to work together. Uh, So I've gained, even though I never voted for Pataki, I would vote for him now, I think. I think I've gained a whole new appreciation for how effective a governor he was. And even though... Even though I've always said that David Patterson is my favorite former governor, um, Pataki, every time I've seen him or interviewed him on the radio, he's always just such a heck of a nice guy, i got to say. Although they're all nice guys. Uh, I know all the candidates that are already in the race. They're all nice guys. But, you know, we've seen before, as those of you that watched that uh, CBS Sunday morning piece on Franklin Pierce or have heard the criticism of Warren G. Harding over the years, being a nice guy does not necessarily an effective leader make. Can George Pataki win in the general election? I'll be honest, I think he can.
I think he can. What's the biggest problem that Republicans in New York are going to face? It's not the issues. Because if you look at the issues, I think the people are ready to abandon the status quo and embrace an alternative, whether it's a Republican, an independent, or somebody else. People are fed up with crime. And I think they would love to see the kind of renaissance that took place in New York in the 90s happen again. People are fed up with these COVID restrictions. Now, uh, I think by November, if we continue at the current pace that we're going, a lot of those COVID restrictions should all be gone. I pray, I hope. But, I mean, you still don't want all these politicians jerking around with masks and everything. I mean, it's just silly. And Pataki would provide a real alternative to that. And the fundamental issue, which voters seem to be ignoring in campaign after campaign, is that nobody can afford to live here. I got paid on Friday. I have nothing in my bank account. If you want to pay taxes and have a job that involves commuting and, heaven forbid, have a child, forget about it. You can't afford to live here. Why do you think everybody is moving to Florida? And it's not just the taxes, although the taxes are a big part of it. It's the cost of everything. It costs a fortune to live here. No one can afford to live in this state. If it's not the property taxes, it's the income taxes. It's not the income taxes, it's the sales taxes. If it's not the sales taxes, it's the mortgage. If it's not the mortgage, it's the rent. If it's not the rent, it's the price of gasoline. If it's not the price of gasoline, it's the price of tolls. If it's not the price of tolls, it's the price of subway fare. If it's not the price of subway fare, it's the price of everything. Nobody can afford to live here. So you'd think a Republican running could say, well, look, these are the guys that gave you high crime, high cost of living, and uh, the COVID restrictions, which are completely arbitrary and inconsistent. And then there's us. You'd think the none of the above category would do pretty well. Well, under the current circumstances, that's not the case. Why? Because Donald Trump in New York, and look, I say this as somebody that voted for Trump twice, Donald Trump in New York remains deeply unpopular. And it's going to be very difficult for either Zeldin or Andrew Giuliani to outrun Donald Trump. Particularly, look, you have Giuliani, who was a Trump administration official, and you have Zeldin, who voted not to certify the elections on January 6th. So I don't see any Democrats or independents who can't stand Donald Trump being able to pull the lever for Zeldin. Now, Pataki is not a Trump Republican. He's somebody that ran against Trump for president in 2016. And while he's been fair to him in the ensuing five years, you don't have any record of Pataki making a statement questioning the results of the election or anything like that. And you do have a lot of criticisms of Pataki from the campaign criticizing Trump. So in a state where you really can't be a Trump person and get elected statewide, that is a huge feather in Pataki's cap, which leads us to today's breaking news. The other side of midnight proudly presents breaking news. Thank you, Matt Blaze. Today's breaking news is that uh, I have been informed by sources that I consider to be reliable, that uh, Drew from White Plains' dream is coming true. Today, this morning, Harry Wilson is going to announce his run, his official candidacy for governor. Now, 
Harry Wilson is trying to um, is trying to occupy that Larry Hogan space or that, uh, you know, uh, that Phil, uh, you know, the, the governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker space where you're running as a Republican that's fiscally conservative, but you're socially moderate and you're not at all a Trump Republican. So I do wonder if maybe Pataki's best option is being evaporated by Harry Wilson jumping into this race. So tell me how you view this race at the moment, both the Republican primary, which now has a fourth major candidate jumping in as of today, um, Harry Wilson. And I'm going to invite all the candidates on this show to address, explain their visions for New York. But tell me, would you vote for a fourth George Pataki term? If the choice was Hochul, Pataki, Larry Sharp, I'd vote probably for Pataki. I, if it was, uh, you know, uh, if the choice was Hochul or Pataki, you know, I would absolutely vote for Pataki. 800 848 That's 1 800 848 WABC. Let me begin with Pete, who's at the Borgata in Atlantic City. Pete, I'm envious. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Yeah, I fell asleep in the hot tub. It was a bad idea, and I stayed in it. It must have been an hour to an hour and a half. In the hot and tub for like, an hour and a half? Yeah. You're like yeah, Kramer. You must have been yeah, a prune. I did. Oh, worse than a prune. There was some women that were celebrating nursing school with my wife and my friend Drew. And uh, we were drinking a little bit of champagne and stuff, so I kind of got, you know, blasted. But I'm recall it because, you know, with Pataki and uh, Governor Patterson, I don't remember any scandals or anything. It was like they just did their job and they did it well. So now with the uh, Pataki comes back, I think that's a great idea. I can't remember anything bad about him. I nobody no scandals, no. Well, uh, and certainly if you compare him to the guys that came after him, there's nothing, oh no scandal God. to speak of. So check out the website, bringbackpataki.com. That's bringbackpataki.com. Uh, you know, the other thing, and just like I said when Doug Schoen wrote that article on behalf of uh, Hillary Clinton, saying that Hillary was the Democrats' best shot for 2024, I pointed out that I thought, in part, Doug Schoen was looking for a payday. And look, look, and I, I like Rob Cole. Uh, we're friendly. But I would be remiss if I didn't look at how Rob Cole pays his bills. Rob Cole is a political consultant with very close ties to George Pataki. And if George Pataki does run for governor, who do you think he's going to hire to run his campaign? He's going to hire Rob Cole. And so I think part of this Rob Cole egging him on to run might be self-interest as well. And, you know, I'll tell you this, and this is really, you know, behind the curtain here. But Rob Cole was Curtis's consultant. And I just looked at Curtis's campaign filing. How much money do you think Curtis's campaign paid Rob Cole and his company in the field consulting? Curtis paid Rob Cole's company $400,000. Now, a lot of that is not as if Rob put it in his pocket. A lot of it was 
uh, Curtis would pay Rob's company and then Rob would pay, say, WABC or a station to buy ads or they would hire other staff. Uh, That being said, you can bet Rob made a lot of money on Curtis's campaign. And I don't think, you know, I don't think it was the best consultant for Curtis. I'll be honest. Um, I think Curtis got 29 percent of the vote without paying Rob Cole $400,000, how much of the vote would Curtis have gotten? I think he still would have gotten about 29% of the vote. In fact, Curtis always talks about this meeting that I set up with him and the chairman of the Republican Party, one of the only two counties to actually endorse him. And Curtis was warned at that meeting, don't hire someone like Rob Cole. What does Curtis do? He hires Rob Cole. In his interview with the Staten Island GOP, uh, he said, no, 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 I'm going to pick a whole bunch of Staten Island consultants. And they love this because Staten Island's so used to being disrespected. What did he do? He didn't hire any Staten Island consultants, even though that's the only borough where Republicans repeatedly win elections. Instead, he hires Rob Cole, pays him $400,000. Could Curtis have done just as well without Rob Cole? I think the answer is clear. Yes. Um, so I think Rob Cole, and again, I don't blame him. This is how he makes a living. I think Rob Cole is looking for another payday here by trying to get Pataki to run. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. We're going to go through your mail, your best and worst mail, in just a minute as well. You can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Susan is in Brooklyn. Hello, Susan. Hey, I talked to you yesterday but that was a whole different topic with Dominic. Um, and I am, I was very active in grassroots politics back in the Pataki days. Now, um, his first term was quite brilliant, but he also had John Faso, um, the was a minority uh, leader in the assembly, who uh, wrote the charter school bill and was the budget director. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, but be that as it may, uh, and the, the, the crime be, was very under control because Pataki had a Republican state Senate. Senate. Right. That's right. And they um, they basically, I don't know, what, what do you want to say? Like uh, parole was very, very t- tough. And so the, the dangerous criminals got locked up and they didn't come back out. And the recidivism rate. Yeah, that's right. That's so all. High. That's all right. So. So uh, what's your point, Susan? Would you vote for Pataki again? Um, no. How come? Because of uh, Andrew, the second and third term? And uh, the third term disaster. Um, <clears throat> Andrew Giuliani has it, whatever it is. Now, Trump won about 90% of the counties in uh, 2020 here in New York. So if if and I believe Andrew, he is dynamic and he can speak to the um, education issue, school choice in the urban areas. He is fearless. He is. I think. I really think that he would be the best candidate well, to win. Yeah, I All think. All the other ones are good. But I think that he just has it. Well, I'm sure Andrew Andrew's a big listener to the station and this show. I'm sure he and his dad, who listens regularly, I'm sure they both appreciate your advocacy. Uh, let me squeeze in one more call here before we go to break. Meantime, we have one, two, three, four, five. Five open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in New Jersey. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. How are you doing? 
Um, first of all, I just had a feeling that, you know, someone who was governor over a decade ago, people still don't lose their appetite for, like, a piece of history, you know? They want fresh faces. And well, you know, it's funny. I, I have on my list for the 4 o'clock hour a whole discussion about how difficult it is to make an effective comeback. And uh, this would certainly be a political comeback for the ages. Now, it can happen. We see it now with Vito Fasella, who just uh, after – you know, leaving Congress, what we were told was in disgrace, just came back to be the highest ranking Republican elected official in um, in New York City. It, you're right, though. I think it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, we've again, it's happened. Terry Branstad, the governor of uh, Iowa, was governor from 1983 to 1999. And then he came back and was governor from 2011 to 2017. So it is possible but it's it's extraordinarily difficult, and we'll go into the reasons yeah, why that's the case a little later. It's certainly possible. Uh, one more thing. Who's this Harry Wilson? I never heard of him. Well, Harry Wilson is the guy that the Republicans have considered their best hope to win statewide office for the last 12 years. He ran for controller in 2010 and almost uh, got elected. He just barely lost. He, he's been, since Pataki, the closest the Republicans have come to winning a statewide election. He's a um, he's an expert on corporate um, restructuring. He's uh, super wealthy. So unlike, uh, you know, Giuliani, Zeldin, even Pataki, he could write himself a check for five million dollars. He was also a uh, Goldman Sachs guy. So he can raise a whole bunch of money from his his uh, buddies uh, to the tune of 10, 20, 30 million dollars at a way that none of the other candidates can. So that's why he's been so attractive uh, to Republicans over the years, because he's able to raise money and spend his own money in a manner that other candidates can't. Additionally, he never really was out there um, as uh, as like a Trump person. So I think Is he that like anti-Trump. Uh, not that I know like of. I don't think so. I don't think so. No, you're not like Larry Hogan. Larry Hogan goes around all day blasting Trump. Yeah, I haven't heard him say much on Trump. He's currently the uh, the chairman and CEO of something called the MAEVA Group, and he's an expert on corporate restructuring. So uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, he's um, it's going to be look. It's 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 getting late early, as Yogi would say. But uh, I'm going to invite all the candidates on either this week or next week, and whoever wants to come on can come on. I'm going to put that on my list of things to do tomorrow. Reach out to all the candidates and invite them on. Um, 800-848-9222. We'll go through your best and worst mail in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. The big news yesterday was that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has recognized two new republics in eastern Ukraine as independent countries. We are going to be joined by Russell Bentley, who we've spoken to before in about an hour. This is the plan. I mean, he's literally fighting off uh, attacks from the Ukrainian military right now. So, I mean, uh, he's somebody... That if he, you know, if he all of a sudden was not available, 
I said, okay, you're being shot at by Ukrainian army officers. Uh, all right, I'll cut you some slack. Okay, fine. So who knows? They may cut off his electricity. I'm sure I'm violating five different new sanctions just by speaking with him. But we're going to speak to him, find out what that recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk means for the uh, world, quite frankly, because uh, it's certainly a game changer. Meantime, if you want to write to me, you can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And you, too, may soon find your email or correspondence read on... email comes to us from Betsy, who, subject, Keith Ablo, known predator. Hi, why would you have on another interview guest again who has a long history of abuse, among other things? Patients and employees described his sexual assault and harassment, and there were malpractice lawsuits from patients who described his physical and verbal abuse, and former employees described threatening and abusive behavior. After years... Of other disgusting behavior, recently, 2019, the Massachusetts Board of Registration and Medicine indefinitely suspended his license as he posed immediate and serious threat to the public health, safety, and welfare. New York State suspended his medical license. In 2020, Drug Enforcement Administration charged him for inappropriate sexual activity with patients and illegally diverting prescription drugs. Please consider someone's history of abuse when choosing your guests. It's not... A trivial reality. Thank you, Betsy. Well, let, let me be very clear. You know, I'm not here to judge people based on their worst moments. And thankfully, you know, again, I know uh, Curtis and Anthony Weiner referenced this on Saturday on their show. We have an owner that is very big on second chances. If you look up and down the lineup of uh, the hosts that are on this station... Every single one of us, maybe except James Golden, has had some sort of a scandal, right? And I I don't think being a scandal, being involved in a scandal should preclude you from being able to give commentary on a subject that you're an expert in. The bottom line is, Keith Abloh, for all his issues, is an expert. He's a multiple-time best-selling author, an award-winning television host. He has been one of the most sought-after writers and, in spite of his issues, has been a pretty well-regarded Ivy League-educated psychiatrist. Now, when you have a scandal, that knowledge that you have doesn't disappear. You still have it. So why shouldn't I be able to tap into it? I'm not here to be someone's judge and prohibit them from being on the radio based on their worst moments. This is, uh, this is an unsigned email coming to us from someone named D-U-H. Subject, smash and grab. Please explain to me the stupidity behind any business to stand there and do nothing while their store is being robbed. 
Anyone this impotent or stupid deserves to have their store violated. If I have a store, I have one and probably two security guards. They see anyone coming in with bad intentions. They start shooting. Duh. Problem solved. Let me tell you something. Outrageous. Everyone's a tough guy until they're faced with a crazy person, maybe an armed crazy person, that's trying to commit a crime against them. Everyone's a tough guy when it's somebody else's store being robbed. Everyone's a tough guy when it's somebody else being assaulted. I wonder if this is actually how you would be if your store was being robbed. I hope it is. I hope it is. And I hope that if these smash and grabbers are armed, they don't hurt you. Uh, this email comes to us from Heather and Emil. Good morning, Frank. Now that the dust of the holidays has settled, let me tell you that Heather and I had a great time at your gathering at The View at the Claridge Hotel on New Year's Eve Eve. You may not remember us. I do remember them. Uh, but, uh, boy, how, how drunk does he think I am? <laughs> I didn't remember them. But, uh, but we solicited your advice on Hard Rock Hotel accommodations after the New Year's Eve Chicago concert, and we toasted with a Woodford Reserve. In a few minutes... We'll be headed towards a Valentine's Day stay at Ocean Resort, and we're just reminiscing about New Year's Eve Eve. We are confident that one of these days our paths may once again cross in Atlantic City, and we look forward to another round at The View. Best regards to Rachel and Carmine, and keep up the fantastic program on WABC Radio. That's an awfully nice email. I do remember this couple. They were super nice, and they did buy me, and I think they bought my cousins, who I was with, a, uh, a round of drinks as well, which I really needed that round because at that point in the evening, my wife was very, very frustrated with me for still being in Atlantic City. So uh, that uh, that Woodford Reserve certainly helped numb the pain, at least momentarily. Uh, this comes to us uh, from Prez. Dear Frank, I never would have thought of reading that Johnny Russo book if it hadn't been for listening to your show. Although I'm not sure what to think after reading it, but I'm positive it was one of the most amusingly written and fun biographies I've read in my life. Thanks for the tip. And I may have mentioned this before, but my beloved late sister, Teresa, turned down Joey Gallo's proposals three times. Listener, love to you, and boy, oh boy, I adore Curtis, but I admire the way you just let him roll with all his chiding blank talk. Must be some envy in there somewhere. Uh, yours, Krez. P.S. For me, that chronic Steve guy's voice has become like kryptonite for my ears. All right. Okay. I'm like the big dog, the German shepherd. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, this is comes to us from Julia. Uh, hi, Frank. For me, it's not Ukraine specific. It's what news we are now being flooded with by the media. All Ukraine COVID hardly being talked about. This is all a diversionary tactic, only in my humble opinion. Great show, as always. Thank you for your much-appreciated contribution. Very nice. Uh, this is uh, comes to us from Lisa Kay. Subject, Russia. Hey, Frank, the United States should continue with extremely tough tariffs and sanctions on Russia. Cut off their ability to provide Europe with oil. Oil's all they have. This will allow the U.S. oil to be exported and flow into Europe. There was no there was no buildup of Russian troops along the Ukrainian border during the Trump administration. I do not want our troops to assist. 
We should continue to support Ukraine with weapons. With a weak president in the White House, Putin will try to move in to take Ukraine. Remember, Putin's ultimate goal is to restore the former Soviet Union. I agree with you. I do not think our presence in Russia, Ukraine is not helpful to the U.S. for now. Putin should be restrained from taking over Ukraine, hopefully with diplomacy. Too bad our Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is lightweight and in over his head. Congratulations to you and Rachel on your new baby karma. And best regards, Lisa Kay. Well, Lisa, um, thank you for the congratulations. You said a lot there. I'm not going to respond to everything. I do. I completely disagree with you that we should be providing weapons to Ukraine. Our weapons are not going to make the difference if Ukraine gets into a shooting war with Russia. So why do it? Why do it? It's like you come across a pit bull, a pit bull that's snarling and ready to bite you. What do you do? Do you smack the pit bull in the mouth because this, th- that will stop the pit bull from biting you? No. What is that going to do? It's going to make the pit bull bite you. That's I don't see the value in continuing to antagonize Russia by providing lethal aid to the their enemy. I, I don't. Uh, this it comes to us from Janice. Had a dream that I was in a big store like Target, standing in the aisle, looking at the flyer when I heard a voice, a very familiar voice, your voice, looked up to see a male talking to a female. His back was toward me. He was shorter than the female, had your hair type and build, walked by but never looked over to see if it was you. As I passed you, reached out and touched my hair. End of dream. I had been listening to your show and must have dozed off. Anyhow, hope you are having a dream interpreter on soon. Take care, Janice. Janice, I don't need a dream interpreter for that one. I mean, it's very clear that you are one of the many women who listen to this show who is in love with me and who I am literally occupying your dreams. And I am the subject of probably untold numbers of fantasies that you're having. So, look, I don't blame you. Very common. Jesus, Frank. Uh, This email comes to us from Gloria on the subject of baby talk. Uh, Yes, it's good to talk to a baby with emphasis higher on a slow sing-song type voice and other ways you might not talk to an adult. It helps them develop listening, language, and speech. Um, It never hurt any child ever. Do some research, exclamation point. Also, your listening audience never hears you talk about Carmine and your joy in his growth in the tiny ways we see growth in infants. All we hear is about a screaming Carmine. Make funny faces with him. Read a simple poem. I hope you talk to him and tell him about your day and your work. It helps with bonding. Don't treat him as an adult yet. Let him be an infant. Gloria. Well, thank you for your um, input there, Gloria. Uh, This comes to us from Karen. Dear Mr. Morano, I thought your guest, Ollie London, was an interesting person. You certainly have a wide variety of guests, and we can all learn from them. There sure are a lot of different people in the world. Thanks again for opening our eyes. Isn't that a nice email? Thank you, Karen. I appreciate that. Uh, This comes to us from Jerry. Subject, podcast rackets. Hey, Frankie, listening to your newest episode, outstanding interview. I'm just curious, what happens when the feds take control of mob assets and all the cash that we take from them. Well, believe it or not, Jerry, that is one of the subjects that I am going to be covering with my guest on the Racket Report this week, Matthew J. Mary. If you're not listening to the Racket Report, please subscribe to that podcast. Uh, we delve high, headfirst into the world of organized crime. But 
the money that the government takes from the mob or any other criminal goes the same place any other government money goes to. It goes into the general fund, and they can spend it for, for better or worse, whatever they want. Uh, let's see. We'll go. Let me pick three more. Okay. This comes to us from a a, 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 a Franciscan brother, I believe. Brother Greg writes, Greetings, Frank. Just listening to you now, I continue to wish you and WABC Radio. Other hosts and you bring so much good to the airwaves. Nonetheless, there is an ob- observation I wish to share. I've noticed some hosts use names for certain people, including Moron, Thug, and Low Life. These labels do not serve to unite but break further apart. I believe, I believe it is behavior to which these hosts are taking exception. Therefore, it would be better if the host could focus on the behavior instead of the person. As an example, the host could point out the animal-type behavior instead of calling the person an animal. Uh, on a lighter note, curious how the karaoke night concept was received. If not, well, perhaps a comedy night could be considered. I'm confident many of the hosts slash you could do a great stand-up and even tell a joke uh, or two, roasting your esteemed owner. Looking forward to more great shows. All the best and hugs to Carmine for me. God's peace and love, Brother Greg. That's very nice. First of all, I completely agree. If you notice, if you listen to this show, I don't call anybody a name uh, because I don't really see how that's helpful uh, to anybody. And, uh, you know, if I disagree with somebody, I explain why I disagree with them. I don't really feel the need to call them a, a jerk or something. I, You know, the karaoke idea, I think it did go over well. But, um, you know, uh, the problem is we're always doing so much that uh, a lot of times we get so bogged down with what we have to get done today that we forget about needing to plan for a week, two weeks, a month from now. So I'm going to bring that up again with our uh, program director, Matt Meany, and our president, Chad uh, Lopez. And if uh, time permits, I'll try and bring it up with our owner, John Katsimatidis, as well. Uh, Brother Greg had previously suggested the idea of a karaoke night featuring all the WABC hosts, which I think would be a lot of fun. This uh, comes to us from Sharon. Subject, I'm a fan. Good morning. I sometimes have difficulty sleeping and tune into your show. Love it. Very interesting topics and guests. Keep up the good work and congratulations on the birth of your son. That's awfully nice. Uh, Let's squeeze in at least one more here. Um, Tom writes, (laughs) Subject, you do understand, question mark. Frank, you do understand that the WWE winners and losers are predetermined before the matches are held. Well, obviously, if it's predetermined, it would be before the matches are held. Correct? Question mark. Fixed? Understand? Question mark, question mark. Hope so. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Be safe and take good care, Tom. P.S. Goldberg lost before the bell for his match with Roman Reigns was rung. Got it? Now, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten question marks. Tom, I appreciate you listening. The day that I need you to explain to me how wrestling works is a day where everybody that's in hell had better uh, order some hot chocolate and bundle up with multiple layers and a jacket because hell will have frozen over. Tom, I have forgotten more about the craft of professional wrestling than you will ever know in five lifetimes. 
when did I ever say that I didn't understand that the outcome was predetermined? You can have a, a match with a predetermined outcome and still have two wrestlers that do a good job putting in a, a performance, telling a story with their bodies. Um, since that was kind of snarky, let me add, end with a good email here. This, be the man! You gotta beat the man! This comes to us from Ellen Subject, a great show. Hi, Frank, you're always wonderful. But I have to thank you in particular for yesterday's show. Your style, range of topics, and breadth of knowledge never ceases to amaze me. Yesterday, you again skillfully explained the Russian-Ukraine situation, then moved on to Warren G. Harding, then to Malasia, and also to two ethical discussions, one concerning DNA and the other over the use of likeness of performers who were deceased. Your transitions from topic to topic to topic are effortless and thoughtful. Every show is an adventure. Frank, I never thought that sleepiness would feel so good. Hope everything worked out for Rachel, you, and Carmine yesterday. Continued to success to you, best Ellen. That's awfully nice. Uh, awfully nice. If you ever want to reach out to me, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. You want to comment on what anybody had to say? Uh, you can do so, 800-848-9222. It's 1-800-848-WABC. That concludes this edition of email correspondence. Thank you for writing. On New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Spring was never waiting for a steal. It ran one step ahead as we followed in the dance. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, that is the Donna Summer version of MacArthur Park, or, or though, as she and Richard Harris say it, both in their version of the song, they both don't say MacArthur Park, they say MacArthur's Park. And uh, it's always interesting to me that they could, you know, Harris couldn't say MacArthur's Park. If he couldn't say MacArthur Park, he, they kept recording it, he kept saying MacArthur's Park. And that's how it was for then everybody that uh, recorded the song afterward. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Charlie's in Hell's Kitchen. Hey, Charlie. Yes, Frank. I called to respond to some of your emails. First of all, the guy who was saying that if he were a shop owner, if he owned a shop, that he would shoot the uh, muggers or he would shoot the thugs who come in to rob him. And he was saying any shop owner who doesn't deserve to get robbed. That's that's not a 
correct statement because what the guy is failing to take into account too is the liability issues. I mean, you can get sued out the wazoo. You can lose your shop, lose everything you own if you shoot and hit a bystander or a wrong person, or even if you injure the criminals himself. And it's just the, the liability issue. The guy's not taking that into account. Well, I, I think it was a woman that wrote, but but your point's still well taken. And the the other thing, Charlie, is it's it's look, it's and I, I'm sure I'm guilty of this as well. But it's always easy to say what you would do until you're in a position to do it. Then all of a sudden, once reality meets theoretical situations, a lot of times reality. It differs pretty starkly from what you would do in a hypothetical situation. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I and I, I think the woman wasn't taking that into account. I think I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's in a in real in real life, it's much different. Well, than th- how you would. Yeah, thanks for calling, Charlie. Appreciate it. The other thing I'll just add is her solution of if crime's out of control, oh, hire private sector security guards. That is not the way government's supposed to work. That's maybe a libertarian paradise like Somalia, where everything is private, private sanitation, private fire department, private police department. We used to have a private fire department in New York. It was a disaster. You ever watch the movie Gangs of New York? That gives you a pretty good idea of what it was like to have a private fire department. So what she's saying is that because we can no longer rely upon our public institutions, that we should privatize them all. I don't agree with that. I think the solution is to improve public safety and other public institutions. Um, If you want to follow me on Facebook, you can do so by going to facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. I'm trying to build a social media army. Because that's how you apparently uh, are able to get ahead in the world of the media now is by building your own following across multiple social media platforms. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano or that or um, that's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O or on Instagram at Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. I just posted on Facebook and I, I know this is going to sound hyperbolic and you may not believe me. But I've bu- I just posted this article from the Washington Post magazine. It is one of the best articles I have ever read in my entire life. The article is called A Dog's Life. Why are so many people so cruel to their dogs? And it's written by someone named Gene Weingarten. Um, and it's his search to understand a hidden scourge, which is just people mistreating their dogs. And it is incredible. It's a lengthy article. I couldn't stop reading it. And it was, on the one hand, it was so sad reading about these stories of animal abuse. And on the other hand, it was so vivid and so interesting. And there were so many different pieces of this that I didn't know. Public policy aspects of it, aspects of what PETA does and doesn't do that I couldn't stop reading. On the one hand, I I so wanted this article to end because I found reading about the dogs that were mistreated or neglected, I found it so objectionable. And on the other hand, it was such an incredibly moving 
piece of journalism that I never wanted this article to, to end. So I posted it on my Facebook page. You can read it, facebook.com slash Morano fan. It did, um, you know, it does. It, it's a lengthy article, like I said. So there's a lot of different aspects to it. But it gets into the issue of dog tethering. There are some municipalities in this country where it's it's illegal to keep your dog tethered for a significant length of time. Now, not a lot of places, only 1% of all cities, towns, and counties in the country. But um, even in those places, it does go on. But after reading this article, I, I mean, you read about these dogs that are forced to be tethered to a fence or a pole, and they can't move more than 10 feet in some cases, and that's their whole life. And it's just the saddest thing in the world. After reading this, I am a very, very, uh, I've become a very big believer that these bans on keeping your dog tethered for prolonged periods of time should be prohibited. So uh, my wife is supposed to take her favorite cat, Beth Sheba, to the vet today because she's experienced some sudden weight loss. This is by far her favorite cat. If you gave my wife a choice of never seeing me again or never seeing this cat again, there is not one scintilla of doubt in my mind that she would say, oh, I'll be happy to never see Frank again. I can't bear to never see Bathsheba. So I'm hoping she has something that is treatable and that is not too serious. So one wish her and my wife the best of luck. I don't understand why they still have these COVID restrictions in place at the vet. We'll see. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You heard Frank Diaz there reference the situation in Donetsk, uh, the newest country, at least according to Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin has recognized these two breakaway republics, and he has now, th- this is relatively new, uh, he is now ordering troops to these breakaway regions in Ukraine. Um, because he's entered into sort of a, an agreement where Russian troops are going to act as peacekeepers to keep them safe from the Ukrainian military. Well, one of the people that is going to be very thrilled about that is joining us in about 20 minutes. Russell, Texas Bentley. Now, if you have not heard my previous discussions with Russell Bentley, he's an interesting guy. He's an American communist. And once um, and eight years ago, he moved to Ukraine, and he settled in Donetsk, which is primarily occupied. It's part of the country of Ukraine, but it's occupied by ethnic Russians. So eight years ago, the the people of Donetsk basically, and this is why I was so interested in doing that segment on Malasia yesterday, because I, I'm fascinated by the story of, by the idea of what makes a country a country. Is Taiwan a country? Well, the United States doesn't think so. China doesn't think so. I do. Is Malasia a country? I don't think that fits many people's definition. Is Donetsk a country? They certainly think so. Until yesterday, no one else did. 
Now Russia does. So Donetsk, eight years ago, broke off from Ukraine, and they declared themselves to be a people's republic, a communist republic, independent of Ukraine. And since then, for the last eight years, they've essentially been fighting a revolution. They've been fighting a war with the Ukrainian military. And Russell Bentley has been one of the people, even though he's American-born, he's been fighting on behalf of this new nation of Donetsk. And he's going to join us and tell us what this, or at least we think he is. I mean, for all I know, he's been captured by uh, some Ukrainian army unit. But uh, he's going to join us and tell us what that means, what this Putin recognition means for the future of Donetsk. And if this Ukraine business is now over with, are we done with this? Can I stop seeing the headline, Putin poised to invade Ukraine? So we're going to get into that with him. Meantime, this was on my list yesterday, but I didn't get to it. Um, Jeffrey Epstein is an interesting guy, very wealthy guy, sexual predator, convicted sexual predator, knew everybody, had relationships with everybody. High profile politicians like um, Al Gore, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump. High profile attorneys like uh, Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz. Um. High-profile political people, uh, Steve Bannon, for one. The people that that controlled the purse strings at academic institutions like MIT, the guy knew everybody. Even Bill Gates, even after, I, I don't know what it was with this guy. Now, you see the reaction that I got from having Keith Ablo on the radio. Keith Ablo's never been convicted of a crime. You see the reaction that the station has gotten for putting Anthony Weiner on the radio. Usually, once you're disgraced, nobody wants to be around you. You're a pariah. But I don't know what it was about Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein, even once he was a convicted sexual predator, he maintained access to the top echelons of finance, academia, politics, and media. These guys didn't distance themselves from it. I mean, some did. But privately, a lot of these players, international players, they still dealt with this guy. So anyway, he gets arrested because the whole scope of his sex crimes was far broader than what we actually knew. And we knew that Jeffrey Epstein was on suicide watch. And, you know, it's funny. I, I, I know one of the lawyers for Epstein, and I invited him on the show uh, a couple of years ago, and he didn't want to come on. I'm wondering if he'll change his tune now. I'm going to reach out to him again. But anyway, Epstein, even though he was on suicide watch, was essentially left, and even though he was more or less the highest-profile prisoner in the entire country, maybe the whole world. Epstein was left essentially unguarded in a prison cell. And he killed himself. That's the official story. Now, because of his connections to the Clintons and Trump and Prince Andrew and Dershowitz and all these other high-profile people, there was always these conspiracy theories that maybe Epstein 
didn't actually kill himself. My thinking with Epstein, and this, I'm being very honest with my view of the situation, is I think it was like in baseball where it's what they call an unintentional, intentional walk. Now, it's clear what an intentional walk is, where um, the catcher gets up, he holds his hand out, and the pitcher throws these pitches nowhere near the plate. There's no chance the batter can swing them. But you also see an unintentional, intentional walk, where the catcher doesn't stand up and uh, put his hand out and signal for the pitcher to throw the the ball, you know, six feet away from the batter. But the pitcher knowingly doesn't throw anything in the strike zone. The result is still the same. Now, in the case of Epstein, I don't think, I mean, look, we don't know, but I don't think he was actually murdered. But I think someone at the Bureau of Prisons or someone somewhere in the hierarchy of the government. They arranged for Epstein to be in a position to kill himself. It was a murder by other means. I think somebody, I don't know who, but I think someone essentially said, look, we know this guy wants to kill himself. Let's give him the opportunity to do it, and we'll be done with this problem. Otherwise, we don't know what could come out in the trial. We don't know what discovery is going to look like. We don't know what kind of defense he's going to be putting out there because that could implicate some a lot of other people. The guy wants to kill himself anyway. Let's let him. That's my view of the Epstein situation. As to who the nefarious actors were there, I don't know. That's only We can only speculate. So now, why are we talking about this now? Well, <laughs> news came out. I don't mean to laugh, but I find it. Odd. The news came out over the weekend that a modeling agent who was close to Jeffrey Epstein was was found dead Saturday in his French jail cell where he was being held in an investigation into the rape of minors and trafficking of minors for sexual exploitation. Victim, how familiar does this story sound? Victims of the alleged abuse described shock and dismay that the agent, Jean-Luc Brunel, will never face trial. Sound familiar? They described his death as a double blow after Epstein killed himself in 2019 in a Manhattan jail awaiting sex trafficking charges. Paris police are investigating Brunel's death according to the prosecutor's office. The circumstances of his death were not made public, and Brunel's lawyers did not comment on it. Brunel denied wrongdoing and said his lawyer, said via his lawyer, that he was willing to talk to investigators. Brunel's legal team had repeatedly complained about the conditions of his detention and sought to have him released pending trial. My question for you is, do you think this guy killed himself? I'm skeptical. I have to be honest. 
I'm not trying to create conspiracy theories. I'm not trying to fan the flames of conspiracy theories. But here was someone who admittedly was not being held in the best of conditions, but who maintained his innocence. So why would he have not continued a vibrant defense to get himself out of prison? Could the, I think it's almost more likely that this person was murdered than Epstein. There was no reports that I'm aware of that this person was on a suicide watch. Brunel was in his 70s. He was detained at uh, Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport in 2020 as part of a broad French probe unleashed by the U.S. sex trafficking charges against Epstein. This was someone who was a frequent companion of Epstein, and he was considered central to the French investigation into alleged sexual exploitation of women and girls by Epstein and his circle. Epstein traveled often to France and had apartments in Paris. I find this very bizarre, and my heart goes out to the victims here. Uh, A lot of the victims spoke out. They said this was uh, a shock. And now they're basically denied justice. What do you think happened here? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is uh, the 3 o'clock hour, one of my favorite hours, because they call this the hour of the wolf. You ever hear that term, the hour of the wolf? I think I first heard the term while watching that terrific television program, Babylon 5. Have you ever heard of the hour of the wolf? No. My father told me about it. It's the time between 3 and 4 in the morning. You can't sleep. and All you can see is the troubles and the problems and the ways that your life should have gone but didn't. All you can hear is the sound of your own heart. I've been living in the hour of the wolf for seven days, Lita. I suspect many of you, if you're awake right now, not because you're coming home from work or traveling to work, but because you're home and you can't sleep. Maybe you can't sleep because your prostate is a little overactive for your take, for your taste. Maybe you can't sleep because you had a nightmare. Maybe you can't sleep because you are stressed out about something. I suspect that for many of you, this is indeed the hour of the wolf. There was a movie. I have not seen the film. It's been tough to get a hold of for me. But there was a movie many years ago called The Hour of the Wolf. And while I've never seen the film, it was a uh, – you could find this on the YouTube. There is a terrific, terrific um, trailer for this film, The Hour of the Wolf. The Hour of the Wolf is the hour between night and dawn. It is the hour when most people die, when sleep is deepest, when nightmares are most real. It is the hour when the sleepless are haunted by their deepest fear, when ghosts and demons are most powerful. The hour of the wolf is also the hour when most children are born. How cool does that sound? The hour of the wolf. All right. uh, Call in. Tell me if you think his Epstein associate killed himself, if you think he was murdered. Obviously, we have no way of knowing... Uh, But if you have a theory 
Let me know if you have a theory that's supported by the evidence or circumstantial as it may be, even better. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Wide open phones now, so you'll be able to get right through. 800-848-9222. You can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. We are scheduled to go live to Donetsk in uh, the next few minutes to talk with Russell Texas Bentley, who is in Donetsk, one of the latest countries to be recognized by Vladimir Putin and Russia. Um, So we're going to check in with him and see uh, what this recognition from Putin means in terms of the future of their country. So um, I'm looking forward to this conversation very much. It's funny. I had something else planned for today. And then as soon as this Putin recognition came, I immediately uh, tried to get a hold of Russell Bentley, and uh, we were able to, thankfully. So hopefully he still has electricity, and hopefully we're able to chat with him in uh, just a few minutes. Then in the 4 o'clock hour, there's a whole lot uh, that I want to get to, including yesterday was President's Day. So I did a little bit of a mental exercise on President's Day And uh, it goes beyond the scope of our Warren G. Harding discussion yesterday. Uh, I'll tell you about it in just a minute. And uh, I read this fascinating interview in GQ with, of all people, Francis Ford Coppola. So, um, again, this guy is more active, Coppola, at 82 years old than I think most people are uh, a third of his age. So uh, I'll share that with you. All right, we're gonna go. We're gonna try and go live to Donetsk and or uh, take your calls in just a minute. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two. Straight ahead. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, seventy seven WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, there are a whole lot of people in light of Vladimir Putin's uh, interview, uh, not interview, decision yesterday to recognize these two breakaway Ukrainian republics that believe that he is well on his way to reforming the USSR. By now, you have seen the story. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia have have recognized... Two brand new republic republics, Donetsk, the People's Republic of Donetsk and Luhansk. And we are uh, going to the center, the eye of the storm right now, to the People's Republic of Donetsk, which is recognized by at least one other country right now. 
And we're going to uh, chat with Russell Texas Bentley, an American expatriate who has been in Donetsk for years now, fighting alongside these Ukrainian separatists. He's kind enough to join us on the radio from time to time. Russell, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Frank. It's good to be back talking to you. Russell, why is it that it's you have better reception in the middle of war-torn Eastern Europe than I do when I try to talk to somebody who's in Brooklyn? <laughs> well, you know, we, we have pretty good uh, infrastructure here. Uh, in spite of the war, we've uh, got a government that uh, tries to take care of the people, which uh, isn't always the case other places. All right. Now, uh, give me your reaction to the announcement by Vladimir Putin and Russia yesterday. Well, I mean, this is uh, a really huge development. You know, I think that we can uh, safely say that it will be a history-making, history-changing event that people will remember in years to come as the before and after. Particularly here, uh, the shelling by the Ukrainian army against uh, our civilians and our defenders has been intensifying over the recent couple of months. It's been uh, very, very heavy. They've been uh, they've two two schools got bombed in uh, Donetsk yesterday. Uh, you know, four civilians were killed, at least four. A couple of our soldiers too. So I mean, uh, you know, they they targeted an uh, electricity generating station. They've um, really been uh, doing war crimes. As, as much as they can. So, you know, this is going to stop. You know, in fact, as soon as the announcement was made, uh, I can, uh, you know, reveal that uh, the Russian army, which they've been saying for seven years, oh, that the Russian army was here occupying Donbass. Uh, and that was a lie until last night. The Russian army did come into Donbass last night, and uh, it's going to be a very big and unpleasant surprise for the war criminals that have been uh, bombing our cities here for the last seven, eight years. You, you said a mouthful there. I want to follow up on a lot of what you said there. Now, um, we had been told by the U.S. government and a lot of anonymous sources in Western media that uh, Vladimir Putin, as a pretense for invading Ukraine, might try to establish some sort of a false flag incident where he would make it look like the Ukrainians were doing something bad as a pretense for uh, the Russian army going into territorial Ukraine. Then it just so happens the Ukrainian army attacks um, areas that are held by the you, the Russian-backed separatists in Donetsk and uh, Luhansk. Could this be the kind of false flag incident that Western journalists and the Biden administration were warning people about? Uh, no. I mean, first of all, the basic operating principle of all well-informed uh, people is that Everything that the U.S. government and Western media, MSN, says is a lie. And so that's the basic premise that we operate from. Uh, we're rarely wrong on that. The second thing is Russia doesn't need to make a false flag. They don't need an excuse. They already understand that whatever the reason is, that once they start coming in here, the U.S. and Europe is going to immediately impose you know, the mothers of all sanctions and all like they've been talking about, sanctions from hell. And they know that that's going to happen regardless of whether they're 
reasoning is justified or not. So they have no need to create a false flag. Another thing is they don't have to. There's already been, you know, I mean, beyond the completely documented. I mean, the OSCE, the UN have documented. These are objective, you know, Western, basically Western uh, organizations. And they have both said and proven without a doubt that 80% of the civilians killed in this whole war have been killed on our side by Ukrainian army fire. So, I mean, we don't need a false flag. We already have plenty of real flags to if prove pe- beyond a doubt if people that aren't, the Ukrainians are if, the aggressors If here. people aren't familiar with uh, that, uh, that acronym, OSCE, that is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. That is the world's largest security-oriented intergovernmental organization. They have observer status at the UN, and uh, you you are saying, or that they're claiming, that they've recorded artillery shots fired from Ukrainian military-controlled areas at you guys in eastern Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, for for years, it's it's beyond any uh, dispute completely. Um, you know, I mean, the the false flags are done. I mean, I'm sure you remember the uh, what was it, the gas attacks in Syria that were proven false. You know, I mean, there's the false flags are the operating procedures of the enemy, our enemies. Uh, what we we don't have to lie. We already have the truth on our side. Russell, why would Ukraine, which claims to want to avoid a, a confrontation, an armed conflict with Russia now, why would they ramp up attacks on you guys in Donetsk if they know that that's likely to result in Russian troops coming into what they view as Ukraine's borders? Well, okay, first of all, understand that the two republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, the the front line on those two republics between us and Ukrainian army, it's a little over 200 miles long. On that 200-mile front, the Ukrainian army right now has 150,000 soldiers with all artillery, tanks, you know, snipers, everything everything. And uh, they're against, our guys are about 30,000 soldiers defending. Uh, The recognition by Russia last night officially uh, was a big surprise to them. It was a big surprise to a lot of people. And uh, the people here were very happy about it. Uh, As you can hear from the screaming and squealing, uh, the people in Ukraine and in the West uh, are not happy at all about it. What happened was that before last night, the Ukrainian army intended to come back and try and take the Donbass republics by force. They have 150,000 soldiers against our 30,000. They figured they could come in and do it. But now they're facing, they know for a fact that they're facing the entire strength of the Russian army. So now they're going to change their minds. But up until last night, you know, I got to tell you, since last night, it's been pretty quiet around here. But, uh, you know, there's, first of all, there is uh, Nazi, neo-Nazi um, volunteer battalions. And these are guys with swastika tattoos that, I mean, literally say Heil Hitler and uh, and are as much war criminals as uh, 
the uh, Bandera Ukrainian army that collaborated with the German Nazis back in World War II. Uh, these are very dangerous, crazy dudes. They're genuine Nazis. There's also literally thousands of ISIS terrorists that are fighting on the Ukrainian army side. They've been flown in here by uh, Erdogan from Turkey, uh, from Syria, and there's thousands of them on the other side. So you maintain you know, that the, 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 the United States government right now is siding with not only neo-Nazis in their support of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military, but with ISIS militants as well. Uh, dude, they've been doing it for years. The ISIS guys have been here since 2015. You know, it's, this is no surprise. You don't think that the United States is siding with ISIS in Syria? I mean, come on. They've been arming them, paying them, training them, protecting them since the whole Syrian war. And it's the same thing here. Now, and that's for real. The president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, and by the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Russell Bentley. He's uh, an American born uh, person living in Donetsk, which is at least in the eyes of Russia, officially a country now. They have recognized the People's Republic of Donetsk and the People's Republic of Lugansk. Um, the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, was speaking in Munich three days ago. And he claimed that you guys, the Ukrainian separatists, are shelling them, are, are, were shelling yourselves, quote, out of madness. So let me just ask the question, Russell, to the best of your knowledge, are the, were you guys attacking yourselves for some reason? Well, let me answer that question with another question. Is there really anyone stupid enough to believe that? I mean, you understand that we are defending our own homes, our own families here. You know, I mean, what advantage do we have? I mean, first of all, again, I go back to we don't need to create false flags. There's already, you know, tens of thousands of proven beyond question cases of war crimes committed by the Ukrainian army against the civilians here. And uh, I mean, we don't need to. But anyway, we're not going to kill our own family for some political reason I mean, we don't care what people in Europe or the United States think. We're defending our family and homes. So, you know, we're not going to do that by killing our own family and bombing our own homes. What do you think happens next? Do you think there's a, a likelihood that um, we might see Vladimir Putin go beyond eastern Ukraine towards uh, Kiev and uh, attempt an invasion of the entire country of Ukraine? Well, First of all, it's not an invasion, it's a liberation. You have to understand that Ukraine is an occupied country. It's occupied by the U.S. and NATO. Uh, the United States in 2014 installed a puppet government. Uh, perhaps you remember the uh, uh, famous phone call between Victoria Nuland and the uh, uh, then ambassador to Ukraine, uh, U.S. ambassador, in which she said, F the EU. But she also said the most important thing in that conversation was that she said exactly who she wanted in which position in the administration. And every single one of those people ended up in exactly the positions that she said. The CIA and the U.S. State Department own and run Ukraine. Under Obama, Joe Biden was the point man here. He's the guy who called the shots completely. And uh, so if if the Ukrainian army continues to attack, then Russia will respond and will 
neutralize or eliminate every military threat to Russia or the Donbass People's Republics. And if that means going to Kiev, then they'll be there in a weekend and uh, see you there on Monday. But if, if the Ukrainians at this point, uh, you know, stop attacking, then it's possible and even likely that Russia will just uh, defend itself. But that's really not likely. There's too much crazy dudes with too much heavy weapons on the Ukrainian side of the front right now. You know, somebody's going to make a provocation. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's going to be like um, you understand that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is one of the most highly trained martial artists in the world. He has a uh, eighth degree uh, black belt in judo and a ninth degree in taekwondo. So if you can imagine a street fight between him and uh, Vladimir Zelensky, that's what it would be like for the Ukrainian army to have to be uh, straightened out by the Russian army. So we are not looking for a fight. You know, Russia has a, uh, a, a failed rogue state right on its border. It has to deal with that one way or the other, and it will, but it doesn't want a big bloody war right on its on its border. You know, they want to liberate the people of Ukraine who are under uh, foreign occupation and Nazi oppression, but they don't want to kill thousands of people or destroy all the infrastructure in the country doing it. So they're still looking for a peaceful solution, but, you know, they've had enough of the war crimes of the Ukrainians against the people here. And uh, so they're coming in and they're going to defend us now. Russell, if you're if you're game, uh, I'd love to give our listeners an opportunity to ask you questions about what's happening over there, because I think sure, there's course. a lot of folks that are curious about your perspective. So if you have a question right now in the next few minutes for uh, Russell Bentley, who's joining us now live from the People's Republic of Donetsk, newly recognized not by the United States, not by the U.N., but by Vladimir Putin in Russia. Give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. It's 1-800-848-WABC. We're not going to take a lot of calls, but we'll take a few. So if you have a good question, call in now and we'll get to it. Now, um, uh, Russell, I realize that most of the people in Donetsk are ethnic Russians, and the chances are that when the Ukrainian government is hostile towards the Russian government, they may not want to be a part of the Ukrainian government. But I realize you're not necessarily an objective source on this question, but are there people in Donetsk that would prefer to remain part of Ukraine? Or as best you can tell, does pretty much everyone there want to be separated from Ukraine? Well, there's, you know, there's always going to be some, you know, weirdos or something, you know, but the vast majority of the, uh, mentally competent people in this part of the world, in the Donbass region, are no longer willing to, you know, I mean, and they're, they're, abs- they're willing to fight and die to keep from being under the current uh, Kiev regime. You know, you understand, I don't know if you remember back in 2014 in Odessa when some peaceful protesters there uh, had a protest in front of the uh, trade union and, um, a hundred peaceful protesters were murdered. They were burned and beaten to death in public. I mean, that's another, you know, clearly obvious, you know, no question about it, war crime that was committed uh, on the orders of Joe Biden, you know, to suppress any any type of uh, protest against the uh, coup regime. 
You know, these people, they understand that if these Nazis come into Donbass, it's going to be just like the German Nazis 80 years ago. And so they're not having it. You know, I mean, all my friends right now are in the army. They've, you know, they've gone back into the army in the last week or so to uh, defend Donbass against this, what was an intended an imminent invasion by the Ukrainian army that just got stopped last night by Vladimir Putin's signature. Now, uh, Russell, you're from Texas originally, right? That's right. I'm from Austin, Texas. I know you know the history of Texas. Texas has been part of quite a few countries over the years. They've been part of Mexico. They've been their own country. They've been part of the United States. They've been part of the Confederate States. They've been part of, I I think, five or six. France, too. Yeah, yeah, France, Spain. They've been part of six different nations over the years. We fought a civil war in the 1860s on this continent under the principle that you just can't pick up and leave and decide you want to be your own country. Now, if this Russian recognition of, uh, you know, uh, Donetsk is able to stand and other countries join in recognizing Donetsk. What do you think that sends a positive nation, a positive message to other country, other regions that want to be their own country? Does that send a positive uh, message to places like Catalonia or uh, Venice or Quebec, places where there's burgeoning independence movements or does it send a dangerous message that anybody can just start their own country whenever they're upset at what's happening in their capital? Well, uh, first first of all, I'll mention that uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, and Syria have all recognized our republics uh, already today. So it's not just Russia anymore. Second of all, we can take uh, Texas as an excellent example. It's there's quite a lot of parallels between the history of Texas and what's going on in Donbass right now. In 1835, I believe it was, uh, General Santa Ana made a military coup in the government in Mexico City. He changed the Constitution, installed himself as president for life. And it was after that coup d'etat that the people in Texas decided to break away from Mexico. They started a rebellion. Santa Ana came up. Uh, there was the Alamo. There was San Jacinto, the Mexican army. And Texas won its independence. For 12 years, it was, it's, it was the Republic of Texas. And then it made a treaty with the United States and joined the United States. Now, at that time, the United States didn't have any problem with, you know, the separatists from Texas joining up with them. So, uh, then the Civil War came, you know, and when Texas signed the treaty with the United States, they uh, they put in that treaty that if at a later date Texas decides it's to its advantage to secede and again become its own republic, that they had the right to do that. And the United States signed off on that in that treaty. Then after the Civil War, they said, OK, that treaty is no longer valid. Nobody can break away. But you know what? Uh, and of course, I'm against slavery completely and all that, you know, but I'll say this. Sometimes I wonder if it's uh, not uh, too bad that the North won, because I think that perhaps the United States, if it had been split into two countries, would have caused uh, maybe quite a bit less trouble that it's caused in this world, especially, you know, 
in the later part of the 20th and the, now in the 21st century. So it sounds like you do think any region that wants to break away from any country should be able to. Well, you know, it's like this, you know, on Google Maps, for instance, you know, the Ukrainians have changed the names of some of the towns in Donbass. But the people that live in those towns still call them by the names that they've been called you know, for decades or even centuries. So you understand that what I believe is that the people that live somewhere, it's their right. If I mean, people aren't going to change their governments unless there's a reason. You know, I mean, you understand the United States was a separatist from the British. No, you know? I, I do and understand whole, that. Absolutely. And, 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 look, and the whole... Go ahead. Okay. The whole idea behind the Declaration of Independence is basically what we're doing here in Donbass right now. You know, uh, I mean, the people who live in a place get to decide what the name of that place is called. You know, the people who, you know, stand up have to fight against their own government. You know, they don't they do not do that just uh, because there's nothing good on TV. You know, I mean, Understood. there has to be intolerable oppression before somebody will really get out into the street. And uh, the, the impression, Russell, that a lot of people in the United States have, and I want you to address this, is that Vladimir Putin is using you and uh, the people in, in Donetsk and Lugansk as a, a, a essentially a, a an excuse for him to violate Ukraine's territorial borders and that he, he is using coming to the rescue of these ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine as a pretense for moving in on Ukraine. But you're saying that's not the case. Well, I mean, he doesn't need a pretense. I mean, there's genuine neo-Nazis that say Heil Hitler and Slava Bandera, who is a Nazi collaborator and one of the worst war criminals of the Second World War in the Ukrainian government. You know, I mean, you think how much a Jewish person gets offended if they see somebody with a swastika flag. I mean, you know, they say 6 million Jews got murdered by the German Nazis. 25 million Russians got murdered by them. So how do you think they feel when they see somebody waving a swastika flag, you know, on right next door, you know, right on their border? You know, I mean, they don't need any other excuse. They have enough. You understand, again, I say the Maidan was a coup d'etat. It was a... A, an installation of a puppet government by the United States with the specific intention of making trouble for Russia on their doorstep. And that's exactly what they've done. You know, there's no, no peaceful solution to this. I mean, and Putin has tried for eight years to find a peaceful solution. And, you know, finally, you know, I mean, if eight years ain't long enough, how long is? So finally he says, all right, we're not going to sit there and watch people get murdered on our doorstep anymore. We have the right, we have the responsibility, and we have the power to stop these war crimes. And that's what they're doing. I know I alluded to this in our previous conversation, but I, I just want you to address this one more time. You're a communist. The People's Republic of Donetsk is communist. And yet um, a lot of the folks there seem very fond of Vladimir Putin and Putin's government in Russia. Even though Putin is uh, Putin is a fervent 
anti-communist and the communists usually run someone against him in the presidential elections and they're opposed to a lot of aspects of Putin's agenda. How do you as a communist comport that with your support of, of Vladimir Putin? Well, I am a communist. Uh, the, the people's republics are not communist at all to be, you know, to be honest. Oh, I mean, not. there is okay. A, I, I assume with the name People's Republic mm-hmm. of Donetsk that it would. Well, be I mean, Donetsk. there there is a uh, strong uh, uh, affection and nostalgia for uh, the Soviet Union. Here, uh, the Donbass area was one of the uh, most strongly uh, communist areas in the whole Soviet Union, um, and that's a historical and political fact. But the governments in both Lugansk and Donetsk are not. Uh, unfortunately, to my mind, are not communist uh, in the least. We do have a good, strong uh, social uh, welfare. Uh, you know, education's free here. Medical is free here. The, uh, you know, apartments and heating and, you know, the necessities of life are uh, very inexpensive, if not free and subsidized by the government for the welfare of the people. But it's a long, long way from being an actual uh, communist uh, administration. And what the thing that I and the people here, communist or otherwise, like and respect and love about Vladimir Putin, I mean, is first of all, he's a really cool guy. He is, you know, there, when you compare him to any other leader, national leader in the world, I mean, you look at somebody like Boris Johnson or Macron or Joe Biden. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, you talk about cringeworthy, you know, Biden wears a diaper. Putin is one of the greatest martial artists in the world. You know, Macron or just look at Boris Johnson. And I mean, what can you say? So we respect that he is a great man by any any measurement of a man. We can see his work since, you know, 1990, when the destruction of the Soviet Union, you know, Vladimir Putin more so than anybody else and pretty much everybody else has been the guy that brought Russia back from being on its knees, from being, you know, pretty much getting ready to be completely destroyed and has turned it into, you know, the strongest military in the world, that's for sure. And one of the strongest economies too, with an upward uh, trajectory of the quality of life, which you compare to the United States or Europe these days. And, uh, you know, I'm sure pretty soon there's going to be millions of people from the U.S. and Europe that wished that they could move to Russia and get a uh, Russian passport mm. and Russian citizenship like I have. And that's not why I came here. In 2014, the war was very hard. It was very one-sided against the republics. When I came here, I didn't think I was going to live through the winter. It was very, very heavy fighting, uh, small rebel units against major armored artillery aircraft, the whole nine yards on the Ukrainian side. But we lived. We defended our houses, our families, and and we won. How many uh, how many American sanctions am I violating by even speaking to you on the radio right now? Well, um, I'll tell you what. I think at least last time I checked, which I haven't been in the U.S. in seven years now, eight years almost, but uh, – the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, if it's still in effect, protects you. 
Uh, well, that's you. good. That's good to know. Let me end with this, Russell. What do you call now that you know more and more countries are recognizing uh, the uh, Donetsk People's Republic? What do you call someone that lives in Donetsk? Obviously, if you live in Russia, you're a Russian. If you live in America, you're an American. What's someone that lives in Donetsk called? A hero. <laughs> but is, is there a more precise term? Are you a Donetsker or are you a Donetskyite? What are you? Um, in Russia, we just say, Ya is Donetsk. Ya is Donbass. Uh, fair enough. Is Donetska. Uh, thank you, Russell. It is always enlightening. Hey, stay safe out there. All right. Thanks, Frank. Thanks a lot for having us on. Thanks for defending uh, the First Amendment, bro. Thank you. Uh, Russell Texas Bentley. I would tell you where to find him on social media, but he's banned from just about all the forms of American social media. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 9222. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. That's Lady Gaga uh, singing paparazzi. I had heard years ago that this was one of Donald Trump's favorite songs. That might have been just something he said, uh, but uh, to feed into this image that he had of uh, you know being celebrity focused and so forth. But uh, it's still very catchy to this day. 800-848-9222. That's one 848 wabc Straight to the phones we go. Chris is in Glen Cove. Hello, Chris. Good morning, good morning, Frank. How you doing? I'm, I'm making a living. Okay, just like me. I'm a garbage man. So, listen, one movie I always love watching about Russia, and there's like one of my favorite movies of all time, is Death of Stalin. Oh, that's very good. And um, it's a fine film, great cast. Steve Buscemi is one of my favorites. But people should know, because the movie is, sort of has a light tone, but people should know the history in that film is actually remarkably accurate. Yes, yes. There's a very good documentary on YouTube that actually does, like, the add-up between real life and that movie. Oh, really? Huh. I uh, I didn't know that. I'll check that out. What's it called? Do you know? Uh, uh, I don't. You just got to just gotta search it on the, uh, on the YouTube thing. But it, it's really funny. I mean, the cast is incredible. And England loves, loves, loves to make fun of uh, Russia. Well, yeah, I will check out that uh, that documentary because I enjoyed that film, Death of Stalin, very much, and I would recommend it to people if they haven't seen it. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. James is in Middletown. Hello, James. Frank, good morning. Um, I'm just curious, this Russell, uh, who you were just talking to, he made a case that there's neo-Nazis, there's ISIS fighters, war crimes going on. 
Why hasn't Vladimir Putin made that case? It's the first time I've ever heard this. No, he has. He has said that. Uh, now, um, again, the, the Western media reports dispute that, but the what the Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine and the Russians have said is that the United States is siding with uh, with neo-Nazis, essentially. Well, it just it makes no sense. This is not getting traction. I, I'm, I don't hear it on your station. I don't hear this talk. This should be like the main point of what everybody's talking about. Well, look, uh, again, you know, uh, that's why I'm all, I, I'm not – look, if you um, – you know, I've covered a lot of trials over the years, and uh, a lot of times they'll be asking a witness about uh, a comment that was overheard. And a lot of times a judge will not allow um, allow a statement into evidence. Now, what they what they will say is that they're offering it not for the truth of its content, just for the fact that it was said. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not I'm not confirming what Russell Bentley is saying. You know, I can't confirm that what he's saying is true, uh, but that's what the Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine are saying. So my view is, you know, look, he's a newsmaker right now. He's at the, uh, he's very much in the heart of the area that's making the most news in the whole planet right now. So uh, I I feel like we owe it to uh, people to put a full picture out there. And if that's what he says, you know, uh, let people make their own decisions about whether it's true or not. You know, I have the solution for the whole situation. I want to, I want Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden in a ring. Let them fight it out. Whoever wins, wins. I, I think we know how that one would go, James. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Exactly one year ago, UFO experts were buzzing about reports of a pilot who claimed he saw a long cylindrical object flying over New Mexico. I um, I will bring that to your attention. Coming up next hour, a very, very interesting story, uh, since that um, it's exactly one year ago today that that occurred. Uh, I'll tell you about that. And um, a bunch of other stuff that, uh, that we have coming your way uh, over the course of the next hour as well. Again, I started the show by saying this was one of those days I wish we had a an extra hour. Uh, but uh, I don't. By the way, um, I saw some interesting podcast numbers yesterday. I got a look. At, you know, we've been following the ratings for a while, and knock on wood, we've been doing very good, very well with the ratings, both the streaming numbers and the uh, the actual radio ratings. But we're we're actually the podcast numbers are really great for the other side of midnight. As it stands now, as I understand it, we are. The podcast of this show, The Other Side of Midnight, is in the top 5% of podcasts in the whole country. Now, we'd like to make the top 1%. So even if you uh, listen to this show live, what we'd really love for you to do is subscribe to the podcast, The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hit the subscribe button. You can get it on iTunes. You even find it on Google Podcasts. Even if you listen live, subscribe anyway, because that'll help us. And uh, if you, uh, whether you subscribe or not, please leave a nice review on your podcast app of choice. That'll help more people find us. And tell a friend, even if they're not usually up at this time, tell a friend about this show and that they can listen to the podcast. They can always find it at WABCradio.com. A whole lot of other news. UFOs, presidents, movies, 
all in an hour. I don't know how we're going to get it all in. And, oh, by the way, we're going to give away $1,000 as well, as if that wasn't enough. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, we'll try and get to you. In terms of uh, everything else, remember the words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts, so use it. Is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano? They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Phone number is 800-848-9222. We're on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. The Twitter user, Ossie Dops, said on Twitter, It's very sad that you allowed Russell, Russell misspelled, to spout off about President Biden and the U.S. without asking him hard questions. He's a kook. First of all, um, I, I don't know what questions you wanted me to ask. I thought I asked very challenging questions. Now, I think people, when they say that I don't ask challenging questions, you don't, I don't think you know what a question is, right? So when I have a guest on, I'm interested in getting information about what's happening, about what someone's opinion is about what's happening. I'm not interested in having an argument based on everything someone says. Someone says, oh, President Biden is a jerk or President Trump's a jerk. What am I supposed to do? Say, well, President Biden's not a jerk. President Trump's not a jerk. And then give my reasons why and then have them retort and then have and then my retort. I mean, do you see to me that's not an interview. That's an audio wrestling match. And that's not the kind of journalism to the extent that I do journalism. That's not the kind of content that I like to do. I like to ask questions and if you felt that the questions I was asking were insufficient, you had every opportunity to call in and ask a question yourself. Instead, OC drops, dops, you chose to stay behind the anonymity of your keyboard and stay on the sidelines and be the critic and not step in to the arena. 800 W-A-B-C, that's 800-848-9222. I will take your call in a minute, your calls in a minute, on uh, any subject. It was exactly a year ago today, actually technically it was a year ago yesterday, that UFO experts were buzzing about reports of a pilot who claimed he saw a long cylindrical object flying over New Mexico. This is reported in the Daily Star as well as some other publications as well. American Airlines and the FBI confirmed report and we talked about this at the time they confirmed reports that flight american airlines 2292 which was traveling between cincinnati and phoenix on february 21st 2021 had a near miss with an unidentified flying object 
shortly before 20 past 1 local time. The pilot contacted Albuquerque Air Traffic Control to request information on the bizarre sighting and was heard asking if they had targets up in the air. In an audio clip of the radio transmission, he added, well, I think we actually have a little bit of this radio transmission. It's just from a year ago. Have any targets up here? We just had something go right over the top of us that, I hate to say this, looked like a long cylindrical object. It almost looked like a cruise missile type of thing moving really fast that went right over the top of us. While American Airlines initially played down the report, a company spokesperson confirmed the incident in a statement that said, quote, following a debrief with our flight crew and additional information received, we can confirm this radio transmission was from American Airlines Flight 2292 on February 21st. Uh, let me hear it one more time, Matt. have any targets up here? We just had something go right over the top of us that, I hate to say, this looked like a long cylindrical object. It almost looked like a cruise missile type of thing moving really fast that went right over the top of us. The FAA added in their statement that air traffic controllers did not see any object in the area on their radar scopes. But the sighting quickly became one of the most significant UFO sightings of 2021, as it was one of several triggers that saw experts push for more transparency from the government about investigations into alien life. You know who's going to be here tomorrow is uh, Dr. Sky. Steve Cates. So I'm going to ask him about this as well, because, look, again, my whole take on this has always been we know something's out there. We don't know what it is. At least I don't. Just someone does. I don't. So the more interesting conversation topic is not are there UAPs, are there UFOs? It's what are the UFOs or UAPs? And one pilot said that airline bosses are so hostile to E.T. claims that a colleague was told to get counseling after reporting a UFO. Can you imagine that? A major airline, the reaction is get counseling if you see something. Forget about if you see something, say something. If you see something, get counseling. One uh, pilot told the Daily Star... Most pilots will use phrases like unidentified traffic or aerial phenomena. No one wants to say UFO. If you say UFO, people think you're either drunk or on drugs or nuts. Isn't that a shame that these pilots are now so intimidated they don't even want to say what they're seeing? I think it's a shame. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. To, to uh, any subject is fair game. You want to talk Russia, you want to talk UFOs, whatever the case may be, now's the time. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Mary in Brooklyn. Hello, Mary. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. I listen, to you, I listen to you almost every morning. Thank you. And I'm a normal 9 to 5 guy. Wonderful. I wanted to talk about the um, interview you had with Russell. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was like, t- talking about Russia, how wonderful it is. Did you ever see the movie called White Nights with Barishnikov and Sammy Davis Jr. when Sammy, he, he defected to Russia saying it's a great country and how Barishnikov convinced him that if you want to leave, you can't, right? What's so good about here? Yeah, you know, I've not actually seen that film, but I've heard hundreds of other similar stories. Uh, the Soviet Union was an incredibly impressive, uh, oppressive regime, that's for sure. And still is. 
Yeah, well, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, though. Whatever you want to call it. Okay, it's still oppressive. Well, I'll call it Russia. Uh, 800-848-9222. Jeff is in Suffolk County. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Hey, uh, I can't believe that guy's reception is so good from Russia, and every time I call you, I'm in and out, in and, and out. And neither can I. That's the first thing I said to him. Exactly. Uh, you know, I'm going over to Throgs Nick Bridge now. I'm probably going to lose you, but uh, that was the, a quick observation. I want to ask you a question. I, I, we had a discussion probably a year ago about Biden dropping the sanctions on Russia, and you thought it was a good idea. What do you think now? I absolutely think it's a good idea. Oh, Jesus. Well, why do you this think guy's it's— running roughshod what, over us. Eh? Run, no, no, he's not, because Ukraine is not a democracy— Ukraine is not a NATO ally. And, uh, Jeff, we have no business defending Ukraine from Russia. I mean, none at all. Um, What we should be doing is staying out of Ukraine. We shouldn't be giving them weapons. We shouldn't be issuing retaliatory tariffs. We should be worrying about the borders of our own country, not the borders of Ukraine. Well, that's very true. That's very true. So why would you— I'm glad Joe sent Kamala over there. What did you She'll say? fix it up. Who? I'm oh, glad yeah. Joe right. sent Kamala over there. But so, Jeff, what would what would see? We've seen um, sanctions that were instituted after the Crimea annexation. They've had no effect whatsoever in altering Russia's behavior. So, what would what would increasing sanctions do? Well, I think we we should increase our oil production. Oh, well, that yeah, would hurt Russia I, more than anything. Well, first of all, I completely agree on that front. We should be increasing domestic oil production because that's good for the United States and good for the American economy. Um, I don't think we should be looking to hurt Russia just for the sake of hurting Russia. What we should be doing is look. You got to keep in mind, and thanks for the call, Jeff. Right now, Russia is the second greatest nuclear power on Earth. Russia is the most resource-rich country on Earth. In terms of landmass, Russia is just about the biggest country on Earth. So why would we want to go out of our way to antagonize Russia? Isn't the sounder philosophy to try to work with Russia on issues like nuclear proliferation on issues like terrorism, on issues like the the disaster that's Syria, on issues like, yes, what's happening in eastern Ukraine and the refugee crisis that is likely to emerge uh, if this conflict in eastern Ukraine continues. Isn't that a smarter philosophy? And that's why I'm really so glad that there's a voice like Tucker Carlson on uh, primetime television because Tucker gets it, and most of the other people that I've seen on TV or heard on the radio, don't get it. I think Katrina Vanden Heuvel, who writes for The Nation, gets it. I think Pat Buchanan, in his syndicated column, gets it. I think Glenn Greenwald, on his uh, podcast and his column, gets it. But this bipartisan foreign policy establishment in Washington, they don't get it. Uh, They don't get it because... um, I don't see how America... And look, I don't don't want to become the Russia guy, and I, I... Again, I'll let you um, make your voice heard, but then I want to move on because I don't want to make every show about Russia because it's supposed to be an entertainment show. Um, But I don't see how Americans are made safer 
by NATO continuously expanding. If you remember, who was it that gave us a heads up about the Cernayev terrorists? Russia. Imagine if we listened. We didn't. Um, Who was the first country to offer condolences in the aftermath of September 11th? It was Russia. Uh, We have had a very poor policy when it comes to Russia, in my view. Uh, We'll we'll review it more tomorrow. Uh, We'll give you a couple of opportunities to make a comment, and then I want to take a break from Russia. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, uh, Ron. Good morning, Frank. Frank, one more thing about Russia. During the Civil War, the Russian fleet under the Tsar parked their ships in in New York Harbor and told the world if France or England intervenes in the American Civil War, Russia will intervene on the American side. So it goes back a little little further, okay? But this, uh, I say no war with Russia. And if you question most veterans, they, their opinion is, is the same. We have no vital interest in Ukraine. We, we, we are still hurting from our, all our wars. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I still haven't been compensated for Agent Orange. And we're, and we're producing more and more suicide victims, victims of, of d- disease. We are not taking care of. And one final point, if I may, Frank, this is African American Black History Month. Our military is made up approximately 30 percent African Americans and another 20 percent minorities. And we're asking them to to go to fight for freedom for Ukraine, Poland, all these other countries. And they're not even receiving their, their just rights in this country. Black people are having their voting rights taken away. And it's just not right, in my opinion. And another movie I recommend is T-34. Check that one out. I am not familiar with that one, Ron, but I will check it out. Uh, again, uh, you can say what you want about these various voting rights bills or voter suppression bills, depending on your perspective. We'll leave that for another day. Now, uh, I'll tell you what I did yesterday is uh, yesterday was President's Day. And I was so proud of myself because I exercised such a phenomenal degree of self-control that I felt like I deserved an award of some sort. I came across... Now, I have I have a couple of collections. I have uh, a collection of signed books, which I value very much, and I have a collection of presidential bobblehead dolls, many of them. I have uh, Theodore Roosevelt. I have uh, George H.W. Bush. I have Nixon. I have Trump. I have uh, George Washington. I have um, James K. Polk. I have Benjamin Harrison. I have Gerald Ford. I have Harry Truman. I have Dwight Eisenhower. A number of others. And I came across... Now, there's a lot of presidents I don't have, right? I don't have uh, James Buchanan. I I don't... I have... uh, I think I have, yeah, I have Jefferson, I have Garfield, I don't have Martin Van Buren, I don't have uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, I don't have, uh, you know, William McKinley, I don't have uh, William Howard Taft. I came across a bobblehead store which has bobblehead dolls of every single president. And they just unveiled these, and they're not available for shipping until May. But I was so proud that I exercised restraint and didn't go crazy ordering all of these presidential bobblehead dolls. But what I am doing right now 
is watching at my friend Brendan's recommendation and others, um, the television program, The West Wing. Now, I'm only in season two, but um, I'm enjoying it. I, I don't love it, but I like it. I like it. It's good. And it got me thinking, what are, who are the best fictional TV and movie presidents? I'm not talking about Lincoln in the movie Lincoln, but the best fictional TV and movie presidents. 800-848-WABC. And I did a lot of, believe it or not, there's been a shocking amount written on this question. Uh, I think one of them has got to be Selena Meyer from Veep because she's just so funny. So when you say the best, I guess it depends whether we're talking about the most entertaining or whether we're talking about the best president. I mean, if we're talking about great leadership at a time of crisis, certainly Morgan Freeman in Deep Impact is is great. I mean, how many other presidents have to deal with a deadly comet heading towards the earth. Maybe we'll talk about that with Dr. Sky tomorrow as well. But if you were to make a list of the best fictional television and movie presidents, what would you include? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Somebody who was on almost everybody's list was Andrew Shepard from The American President. The other piece of legislation is the crime bill. As of today... It no longer exists. I'm throwing it out. I'm throwing it out and writing a law that makes sense. You cannot address crime prevention without getting rid of assault weapons and handguns. I consider them a threat to national security, and I will go door to door if I have to, but I'm going to convince Americans that I'm right, and I'm going to get the guns. Now, one of the uh, people that I was surprised was not on many of the lists that I came across was Jeff Bridges in The Contender. For some reason, a lot of people haven't uh, seen the film The Contender. I loved it. And I also found it to be very educational in terms of the way the 25th Amendment works and the way that it it works in terms of uh, marshalling someone through the uh, confirmation process by Congress, either of... um, a vice president, as is depicted in that film, or a Supreme Court justice or uh, a a cabinet secretary. But I was surprised that uh, he didn't make more lists. He would be on my list, Jeff Bridges' character in the movie The Contender. If you haven't seen The Contender, it is uh, really well done. Somebody that was number one on a lot of people's lists. No, and I know you're going to think that um, my fondness for alien movies is going to lead me to think Bill Pullman in Independence Day would be on it. No, but somebody that was on a lot of people's list was President James Marshall in the film Air Force One. Never again will I allow our political self-interest to deter us from doing what we know to be morally right. Atrocity and terror are not political weapons. And to those who would use them, your day is over. We will never negotiate. We will no longer tolerate and we will no longer be afraid. It's your turn to be afraid. One that I think falls into the category 
of most entertaining, but not necessarily the best leader depicted in film and television, is President Merkin Muffley from the movie Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, played brilliantly by the incomparable Peter Sellers. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. (laughs) Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. Now, uh, it's funny. I was just about to say a president that I just got two emails about. Almost instantly, I got two emails about the same president, and that is Henry Fonda in the film Failsafe. That is a terrific, terrific pick. And I was genuinely uh, about to say it uh, because that is real leadership, real leadership in that film. What about you? Who do you think had the best cinematic president? Yesterday was President's Day. I'm sure a lot of you spent some time reviewing the cinematic contributions of our nation's presidents. Michael is in Brooklyn. Hello, Michael. Hey, Frank. Good show. Uh, Kevin Klein in the movie Dave was the uh, best president movie I've seen. Yeah, yeah, I do. And uh, not only is Kevin Klein great in that, but a great supporting role for uh, uh, Charles Grodin as well in that film. And Sigourney Weaver's terrific as the first lady. Yeah, good good movie. Yeah, no. For the show. Thank you, uh, Michael. That's a good one. Love Dave. Mike's in New Hyde Park. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Morgan Freeman was a great pick. I, I, that would probably be my favorite. The least significant president portrayed in cinema would have to be, I don't know the actor's name, the president from Clint Eastwood's In the Line of Fire. Oh, you know, you're right. Uh, I don't think anybody knows the president in that movie. That's a good movie, though. That's a great movie. I love Clint Eastwood movies. Did you see Ab- Sorry, go ahead. No, Ennio Maricone is the soundtrack. I'm sorry, go did ahead. Did you see um, the the movie he did after that, um, uh, Absolute Power? I did not. Oh, yes, I did. I did. That's with, with uh, Gene uh, Hackman as the president. Gene Hackman, yeah. Yeah. Actually, that was, that was a good uh, mal-president, if you will. Well, he was. And, you know, it's funny. In, in The Line of Fire, he, he it's a whole movie basically lionizing the members of the Secret Service. In Absolute Power, he takes exactly the opposite uh, tact when it comes yeah. to that. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Sky is in West Texas. Hello, Sky. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, good morning, sir. I just woke up. So, um, uh, I found a DVD copy of uh, Gabriel above the White House. I'm going to mail it to you. Oh, really? Oh, great. That's wonderful. Yes, That's nice of you. Okay. That's all I want to let you know. Have a, a good morning. Well, okay. is that your pick for the best fi- fictional president? Yes. Wait till you see it. I'm looking we'll forward to it. it. I'm going to watch it, and I'll send it right back to you. I'll watch it this weekend if it gets here soon. Thank you, Sky. 800-848-WABC, the best cinematic or television president. What do you think? Howard's in Elmhurst. Hello, Howard. Yeah, 
I loved Harrison Ford in Air, Play, Air Force One. Yeah, President thought, James Marshall. You know, that's a good one. Definitely. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. That's one I mentioned. 800-848-9222 if you have a pick. There's some other good ones uh, that uh, I'm not going to mention just yet. I'll see if anybody else mentions them. But uh, I like that fail-safe pick. That is a, I mean, you know, Henry Fonda, he just looks like a president. He sounds like a president, right? And, look, we remember what happened in that film, but, uh, you know, that looked like real leadership, right? 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Pamela in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Oh, hi. I just had a comment about the last uh, topic. Sure. However, uh, I think that was John Mahoney who played in In Line of Fire, and he was my favorite. Uh, he was. Uh, yeah. Was that John Mahoney? I, I, I think he was in the movie. I'm not sure if he was the president. I remember him giving. No, uh, I think, I he, think was. he was the uh, he was the director of the Secret Service. Oh, OK. Oh, well, he was good in it. <laughs> he wasn't. Um Anyway, uh, the reason why the transmission from Tonask came through so clearly is because Mother Russia is providing very good government-level clarity for propaganda. There you go. That'll do it every time. I just looked, um, for those of you that are curious, in the film In the Line of Fire, the president is Jim Curley. He is the the president. But, uh, again, it's not a significant part in that film. Everybody uh, else that's been mentioned, the the would-be assassin, the Secret Service agents, those are all much more significant parts than the role of the president in that film. 800-848-9222. Eric in Manhattan, what do you have for us? Hey, Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove. That was the first, uh, I mentioned that. I played the audio of oh, President Merkin Muffin. Oh, yeah. But he played the, the two other parts he played. Okay, <laughs> my bad, my bad. A fine <laughs> film. Yeah, you know, Dr. Strangelove is, uh, is very, very good. And... Um, it still holds up. In fact, I think in some ways it holds up better today than it did years ago because it illustrates the absurdity of, uh, you know, so many of the different things that happen with our, um, you know, with, with our foreign policy. That character of Dr. Strangelove, an ex-Nazi scientist, um, you know, suggesting that Operation Paperclip, which is uh, – yeah, and it, I don't want to give away any of the film in case you haven't seen it. I mean, it's been over, it's been 60 years, so if you haven't seen it now, I don't know what you're waiting for. But the character of Dr. Strangelove is actually based on Herman Kahn, probably one of the most brilliant men who has ever lived. And he was one of the preeminent futurists of the 20th century. And he was the founder of the Hudson Institute, the think tank, the Hudson Institute. And I was very lucky before he died to – I didn't get to know Herman Kahn, but I did get to know um, Herb London very, very well. Some of you may remember Herb London from when he ran for governor in New York 30 years ago or when he ran for controller uh, or any, or the, any of the 28 books that he wrote. But he was a brilliant man and – I used to get together with Herb London regularly for lunch, and he had the most interesting stories in the world about uh, Herman Kahn and what it was like to know him, what it was like to work with him. Uh, he sounds like just an incredible person, and he certainly was an incredible intellect. But that was the basis for Dr. Strangelove, Herman Kahn. And, you know, it's funny, in the last scene in that film, when uh, Slim Pickens is riding the bomb off into oblivion. 
you see either on the bomb or the jacket, I don't remember, but you see uh, the initials HK, and that is meant to be a tribute to Herman Kahn. So that's a true story. 800-848-WABC. Kevin is in Newton, New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Good morning, Frank. Um, real quick, wasn't wasn't Fred Thompson the uh, the, the director of the uh, Secret Service in the in the line of fire? Uh, or did you just say maybe the field director? Uh, the field no, director. it was definitely it was definitely John Mahoney who played. Well, you remember uh, Fred? Well, you remember Fred Thompson was in the I do, I do. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look uh, right. look that up. Who? We, okay, who don't played. be don't be deal. But real real quick, my my favorite portrayal. I don't know my favorite, but as far as a comedic portrayal of a president. It was more than once, but one in particular was Dan Aykroyd playing Jimmy Carter on Saturday Night Live. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that yeah, is a good when, one. And if you, if you ever saw the spoof they did on the, the China Syndrome, where uh, they call it the Pepsi Syndrome, and it, like, it, yeah. it was right after the movie came out, and Dan Aykroyd turned, he, he turned into a 50-foot-tall president. That Jimmy was a, that was a it, good one. It was uh, very funny. Absolutely. All right, right. By the way, Fred Thompson right. played the White House chief of staff in that film. Oh, is that what he was? Okay, because yeah. I know he was in the field, though, during, during, like, yeah. some, during uh, a lot of the scenes, and he was, and he was always at, he was always at, uh, at odds with uh, Eastwood. You know? Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. Very interesting that uh, Fred Thompson then went on to run for president himself later on. He, you know, he used to appear on this station regularly. He was considered, he was hired by ABC News, and they hired him as a, sort of a would-be successor to Paul Harvey. But uh, he ended up running for running for president instead. It was an interesting pick. It was um, the one of the guys that was in charge here at the time was John McConnell. And uh, it was McConnell's idea to hire Fred Thompson, but uh, it was mixed reviews, mixed reviews. Tommy's in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Good morning, Frank. Uh, about the, uh, there was a TV show uh, where everybody got killed and he became like the replacement president or something like that. I think it was Kiefer Sutherland. Um, yeah, I didn't see that. I've, uh, I, uh, I know Kiefer Sutherland was on 24, uh, but was okay. he on another show where oh designated survivor that was the that's the that's one it. designated survivor that's the thing yeah I don't I don't know if it's Keith or Sutherland but I wanted to say yeah, something about Russell mm-hmm. uh, Russell seems to me uh, like a very well spoken man and it seemed like it was almost practice I I feel like it's propaganda and uh, I think that other lady was right about the uh, signal getting through for the propaganda well I I, mean, I I don't preclude that of course I mean they're waging. Both sides are waging uh, information warfare. Uh, I'm sure they want their message out, uh, Tommy. There's a a, re- a reason they're so active in, uh, in getting that out there. Uh, hey, uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000 next. Be the seventh caller now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And if you are, if you can answer 10 questions in 60 seconds, you will be the proud recipient of $1,000 American. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. And my thanks to uh, Philippe, who's kind enough to uh, be our telephone talent coordinator today. Molly was out sick today, so we have her duties being uh, divided largely between Alex, who's been in the last couple of days as well, and Philippe, who uh, was kind enough to stay late. So it is, um, you know, it's never easy. When you're not used to working these hours, it's never easy. Oh, all of a sudden, you have to stay till 5 a.m. So my thanks to Philippe. And so far, uh, nobody's more surprised than me, but so far, Philippe has not made any mistakes, which is uh, certainly a rarity. Meantime, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Uh, yes, thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's say hello to Richard in Rockland County. Hello, Richard. How you doing? I never called a radio station before. Oh. But I listen to a lot to talk radio, so it's weird. The one call... I'm under the pressure. <laughs> uh, well, so Richard, this is your first time ever yeah. calling a radio station. I ever, I never called. I, I, I listened to uh, even from the days of Bob Grant. On Wonderful. WABC. I don't know what you've been waiting well, for, Richard, but uh, uh, but uh, uh, well, I'm more like a background guy. Okay. It's, it's, right. Well, you, I talk a lot, but to hear other people talk. All right. Well, great about that means radio. you're you, you're almost destined to win here, Richard. Uh, have you heard I, this I, uh, I this contest? I'm retired. I'm okay. retired, but I was have a you... cop and firefighter, so I'm used to staying up late. Wonderful. Well, then I hope you win. Uh, have you heard this contest okay. before? Yes, I've heard it, but it's a lot harder when you actually on the phone than listening on the air. Because, right. Okay. You know, it's like so, Richard, the, the key tough. is we want to get through these questions quickly. So the best thing, uh, okay. don't get flustered. Don't get nervous. Uh, if you answer a question correctly, I'm just going to move on to the next question, Okay. Okay. All right. Ready to go? Yes. What legendary band included John Lennon, Ringo Starr, George Harrison, and Paul McCartney? The Beatles. What holiday was Monday? Uh, President's Day. What is the yellow part inside of an egg called? The yolk. What does the Statue of Liberty hold in her right hand? Uh, Torch. Who is the current Secretary of Defense? Anthony Blinken. No. Oh. Unfortunately, it is not Anthony Blinken. Oh, it's Lloyd Austin. Yeah, unfortunately. See, that's the thing. Well, you rush. You rush because you got. I know. I know. I've been in your position. I've been there. I know exactly what it's like. It it is a very high pressure situation. That's what I said. It's easier to listen and get the right answer. Exactly. Because I jump because you're in a rush. Exactly. I know what it's like. Richard, hang on. I appreciate you calling. I appreciate you playing. I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to give you a consolation prize. Uh, Give Philippe your information. Um, Make sure he takes it down accurately. And uh, we'll we'll give you something cool. By the way, I finally was able to get some of the um, the the numbers from the WABC radio store, and more and more people are buying the pretty neat merchandise that we have. And um, you, we have blankets, we have drinkware, we have hats, we have shirts, we have all sorts of cool stuff. And there's more stuff being added all the time. So if you want a cap like the one that um, Richard just won. As a consolation prize, go to WABCRadioStore.com. You can search Morano or you can search The Other Side of Midnight. 
And uh, there's all sorts of great merchandise that comes up. Now, we just added some neat alien merchandise. So if you want that, just search the word alien and it comes up as well. So you can uh, you could check it out there. But uh, whatever you end up buying, even if it's stuff for one of the other hosts, Rudy Giuliani or Bernie and Sid, Cousin Brucey, whomever, uh, you can use the promo code Frank 15 and save 15 percent off. And uh, I'd love to point to these numbers a week from now and say, you see, I asked people to buy some of our merchandise and they just bought a whole bunch of it. I'd love to be able to do that. So go ahead and make me look good. Uh, com. That's com. Discount code FRANK15. It's FRANK15. All right. Uh, hopefully you're doing something fun today. Uh, the big drama in the Morano household surrounds my wife taking her favorite cat to the vet uh, because this cat, Beth Sheba, has lost has lost a whole bunch of weight, and um, hopefully it's nothing too serious. I don't know. I, I I said maybe it's diabetes or something, because our other cat is diabetic, and maybe she picked up poor eating cat uh, habits from this other cat. So I don't know. But uh, my wife's very nervous. She's had this cat for a long time, long before she knew me. Uh, she had this cat, and uh, this is this cat is really a wonderful cat. Uh, we have one cat that scratches everybody except Rachel and me. We have one cat, Prissy, that doesn't want to be bothered with anybody. She hides as soon as there are people that, that come in. And then there's one cat that's just as friendly can be. Whenever, whenever we have visitors to the house, that's always what we tell them. Only pet the black one because she's the only one that's really nice to everybody. So uh, hopefully it's nothing too serious. You know, it could be any number of things. We'll see what happens. But. What I was saying is, uh, I don't understand why the veterinarians' offices still have all these weird COVID rules. You can't go in with them. You have to call when you get there. And then they come and take your animal. They take the animal in, examine them, and you have to wait in the car the whole time. I mean, are we still doing this? I mean, enough's enough. It's crazy. So uh, if you, those of you that pray, please say a prayer for Bathsheba and Rachel, and by extension me, because even though I'm quite fond of Bathsheba, this will not be a pleasant household to live in if Bathsheba is seriously ill. I, I can promise you that. That'll be a disaster for Carmine, for me, for everybody. Um, but uh, as far as my day, I'm going to try and see if I can use my airline miles not my uh, my credit card miles, rather, on my American Express card, to purchase uh, my ticket to my uh, brother's wedding in Hawaii. I've told you about this before. My brother Nicholas is getting married to Kat, um, and uh, that's his fiancée's name, Kat. And uh, they're getting married in June in Hawaii. Uh, it doesn't look like my wife or my son are going to be able to come, but I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to see if I have enough mileage with this uh, Amex points to be able to purchase an airline ticket. I think I might be able to, actually. I've never been to Hawaii before. I certainly wish I was going with my wife, but uh, we'll see. I'm looking forward to an adventure, looking forward to being there, certainly happy for them. I don't know if uh, this particular, I mean, I don't remember the name of the island that the wedding's being held at, but I don't know if they have direct flights to this island. If they do, I'm wondering if I should try and get a direct flight or if I should try and do 
a layover somewhere. I, I'm leaning towards the layover, uh, and I'll tell you why. And if you want to try and convince me otherwise, you can do so at 800-848-9222. Although, I'll be honest, I don't know if they offer direct flights from New York. But I'm leaning towards the layover, one, because I think the flight is something like 11 or 12 hours. That's a long time to be on an airplane uh, without any sort of a break. So it would be nice to have a break. Also, I mean, I, I mean, I think I could probably manage. Uh, you bring some books to read. You bring some stuff to write. You br- you know, make sure you make use of the onboard cocktail service, which is allowed now. And uh, just you, you get nice and soused, knock yourself right out, sleep for a few hours. Uh, but I have such a fondness, even though I don't love the flying experience and I find the whole airport experience kind of demeaning, to be honest. I have such a fondness for uh, airport lounges. Love airport lounges. So if there's a layover somewhere, I could stop over to the airport lounge and make myself, uh, you know, make myself at home in the airport lounge. On Twitter, I am an, uh, on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. Jazzman writes, nice job promoting Russian propaganda this morning. Perhaps Staten Island can secede and join the Federation. You know, I really, I find that, I find that um, comment so juvenile and so unhelpful. I really do. Because right now, the biggest story in the world is what's happening in eastern Ukraine, specifically in Donetsk and Luhansk, Lugansk. And I had someone in Donetsk who actually speaks English telling you what's happening there and the view of the people that are responsible for this breakaway republic. Now, you don't have to agree with him, but to say that we shouldn't be covering that story to me, is incredibly naive. I'm looking at four television screens right now. Every single one has Donetsk on it. And yet, you're saying that by covering the story, we're providing a mouthpiece for Russian propaganda. I asked challenging questions. I don't know what... And I gave you an opportunity to ask challenging questions. So, 800-848-9222. We'll do more Russian talk tomorrow, maybe. Joe is in Orange County. Joe, what should I do with this Hawaii trip? Frank, you got to fly. I told you before. I once before I pulled up. You got to fly into San Francisco, California. I know you said over there it's kind of sketchy now. You got to fly into there, then fly to Hawaii. But you can only fly into Honolulu. I don't know what island he's getting married on. Yeah, it's not that one. So there's no option for a direct flight. So I, I that you'd say you'd say um, you'd say San Francisco then. Yes. Okay. And, oh. and then you fly to Honolulu, and then you have to fly to one of the other islands. You know, either it's the big island or, you know, um, one of the other islands, you know. I will uh, I will work on that. Thank you very much, Joe. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Joe is in the Bronx. Hello, Joe. Is Joe asleep? Yeah, it sounds like Joe is not only asleep, 
But it sounds like his radio Hello. is on, which I Hello. don't like in the least. Uh, Anyone? Eight- <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything we're covering. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame coming up in just a few minutes. Then you'll get to hear the WABC early news starting at 5 a.m. And then the Bernie and Sid show from um, 6 to 10. I think uh, I think Bernie's back today. I uh, I enjoyed hearing our owner... John Katsimatidis on with Sid Rosenberg yesterday. There was some interesting discussions uh, with Charles Gasparino and uh, and some other folks. And uh, I really, I, it's, you know, I love to play mad scientist and see how these different radio combinations of people work out with one another. Uh, so I thought that was uh, certainly really an interesting conversation, interesting duo to hear together. Hey, um, you know what I did have an opportunity to see recently? I've been telling you I've been watching a lot of this WWE network. And I'm really into the documentaries that are on there. And I do think that most of the documentaries that are on there are they're pretty overt propaganda for the side that won. You know, it's like if um, if the United States won the Cold War, which we did, we get to write history and then we tell our version of what happened in history. So uh, that's what the WWE is doing. Uh, They really, anybody that feuded with either the WWE or the McMahons or competed with them like WCW did, it's such a skewed perspective. It's still interesting, though. And I enjoyed this uh, Superstar Billy Graham documentary. Superstar Billy Graham is still alive. We might try and get him on the show. He's somebody that was uh, very much an inspiration to both uh, Jesse Ventura and Hulk Hogan, among others. But what was interesting to me, and I remember superstar Billy Graham, but uh, primarily later in his career, what was interesting to me is they spent some time talking about how upset superstar Billy Graham was when he was forced to uh, give up the title to Bob Backlund. And he actually ended up leaving the WWE at the height of his popularity. I mean, he, think of the legendary series of matches that he could have had with Bob Backlund all over the country. But instead, he was so ticked off that he left. Now, he came back a few years later, but it was never the same for him after that. And, you know, one of the things that I always say is that it's very difficult to make a comeback. If you make a career in the public eye, whether it's radio whether it's television, whether it's politics, uh, and we discussed this a little bit earlier with Governor Pataki's possible comeback, whether it's sports, whether it's comedy, whether it's very tough to come back. Unless, I don't know why that's the case. Uh, I think maybe people's, once they get out of the habit of listening to you or hearing you, they just, I don't know, Start listening and enjoying other things. Um, Or maybe you get out of the habit of doing it. You know, one example that uh, some friends of mine gave me recently was Mike Francesa. Now, Mike Francesa was on the air on a sports station here in New York and and nationally. He was uh, simulcast on the Yes Network. 
He was on the air five hours a day in New York. Five hours every day. And he was number one. Number one for five hours. Or as he would say, number one. And he went away. And it's funny, as my friend put it, he didn't really change with the times. Once people got away from that slow, methodical style, it was it was hard to go back to it. People realized, all right, well, we don't really need to hear sports talk that way anymore. You know, somebody that had frequent retirements and comebacks was Art Bell. And I spoke with Art Bell about that uh, before he passed away, and I asked him, why did you keep retiring and why did you come back? This is what he said. Well, there are actually a number of reasons and a number of retirements. I retired uh, when my son got attacked by one of his uh, teachers. That was a horrible incident. My goodness. Um, yes, it, it was. And, um, and so I left to, uh, to care for him. Uh, a lot of people, I guess, don't know that. And, and then I finally decided I had enough of corporate radio. And then, like an idiot, I went right back and uh, signed a contract with uh, Sirius XM, and it just didn't work out. Their streaming service was having difficulties, and I said, look, let's do this. Let's uh, allow people to stream for free until you can get it fixed. And they said no. And I said, well, okay, bye. <laughs> I guess I'm like that. And um, I said, no, I wasn't bought myself a two-year vacation, you know, a non-compete. And when that was over, I have now now begun to do exactly what I said I would do, and that is to go on and stream for free. So uh, in radio, you know, Art Bell, it was never the same when he came back. Francesa, the same thing. See, guys like Bob Grant and Barry Farber that basically stayed on the whole time, that's the way to do it. TV, same thing. Arsenio Hall... Had the biggest talk show. Then it was gone. He tries to come back just a few years ago, basically doing the same thing. It didn't take off. It's difficult to say why it didn't take off. It just didn't. John Corzine, after he left being governor, not by his choice, went back to the world of Wall Street. Didn't work out. In politics, guys like Elliot Spitzer, Anthony Weiner, Eugene McCarthy, Tom Tancredo, they have a heyday. They try for a comeback. It doesn't work. Sometimes in sports it does work. George Bull. Ted Williams, when he lost years to the service and came back, he was still Ted Williams. But for other people, it doesn't always work out. And we, we talked about this the other day with Goldberg. In comedy, you know, as great as George Carlin was, that five-year break that he took from stand-up comedy, other people, I think even Jerry Seinfeld, have mentioned that it was very difficult for him to go back. So... Um, so, uh, my take is, and that's why I'm never going to leave, as long as I have a job here, uh, you will never hear, you will never read a story of me taking a three-year hiatus. That will never happen. They're going to have to pry me away from this microphone. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 1-800-848-WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
This is the other side of midnight, but now it's time for you to be heard for 15 seconds at 1-800-848-9222 because it's time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Let's begin with Ray in Woodhaven. Hello, Ray. I hate the British. You are defeated but have no shame. You endure but have no courage. You're stubborn but have no pride. I hate the British. Mike is in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, wifey's taking the cat to the vet today. Good luck with that. And you can kiss that last hundred in the checking account. Bye-bye. Mark in Westchester. Yes, Frank. I want to say it's my third year of being divorced, and I'm so happy that you gave both of my daughters a birthday shout-out during my last 15 minutes. We love you, brother. We love you. Thank you. Happy anniversary. Frankie is in Glendale. Repeat after me. Emergency. Everyone front street. Emergency. Emergency. Everyone front street. Joe in Ronkonkoma. Great show, Frank. Shout out to Frank from Glendale. And Joe Biden, come on, open up the pipeline. I'm sick of paying high prices to gas. Jimmy in the Bronx. She's a moron, she's a moron. Roberta on Staten Island. Yeah, how much is the price of uh, gas going to go up now? And, and the stock market going down today. Uh, tune into my business report next hour to find out. Mike in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I'll tell you one good thing about invasion. It got rid of the pandemic. <laughs> Neil on Staten Island. It's getting harder to make ends meet. I'm thinking of opening up a bikini wax service. Neil's Bikini Wax, and advertised on your show. That would be an honor. And finally, Jackson and Queens. Yes, uh, Frank. Uh, I'm a Confederate uh, black gentleman from a Confederate city. Eric Adams uh, doing crypto uh, currency is a big no-no. He should stop immediately. All right. That about slams the lid on things for today. The WABC Early News is next. The Bernie and Sid Show coming up at 6 until 10. I'll be back at 1 a.m. with the great Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. Until then, Frank Moreno. Good day.